Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. This podcast is part of the Big Heads Media Podcast Network. Go to BigHeadsMedia.com for more great podcasts. Welcome to Brew Crime. I'm Mike. And I'm Beck. And I'm Nina. And we have a special guest on this episode here. Can you uh, let people know who you are, Emily? Hi, I'm Emily, and I'm the writer, host, and producer of the weekly true crime podcast, Morbidology. All right, well, we're doing an episode on cults today. I'm going to call it, I think, uh, Cults Uncovered, because that's the name of your new book. Let's start here as we're holding the book. (laughs) I'm showcasing it to Beck and Mike very graciously. Yeah. Very Vanna White. Yeah. So, I mean, I know you from your podcast and, you know, mm-hmm. the, we'd have a little chat on the side here yeah. with a bunch of true crime podcasts, but can you tell people a little bit about your um, background in writing? Where did that all come from? Okay. So I am the creator, as I mentioned, of Morbidology. I also created the website Morbidology. I'm also the author of Unsolved Child Murders, which was published by McFarland and Co. I have that book in front of us too. Yeah. Yeah, you, you sent me a photo the other day. Yeah. Um, so I wrote that, and then I wrote Unsolved Murders, True Crime Cases Uncovered, which I co-authored with Amber Hunt, and it was published by Dorling Kindersley in February of 2019. And my third true crime book, Cults Uncovered, was published by Dorling Kindersley in February of this year. Awesome. So what got you into the true crime genre? Um. Good question. I think like a lot of people, uh, I don't know about you guys, but um, my interest actually came from my mum. I remember when I was a kid, she had this massive bookcase filled with true crime books. And I remember from quite a young age, I used to steal them pretty much. (laughs) Nice. I remember, yeah, the first one I read was, um, I think it was just called Fred and Rose West. Oh, I know that couple. Good couple. Really wholesome. (laughs) Horrible, horrible case. I remember it was actually when we were on holiday. I think I must have only been about 12. And I remember reading it and I I probably didn't understand any of it. But from there, I kind of just started started reading true crime. Seems seems a lot of people, I think, just reading. And then your, your interest developed from there. 
and then skyrockets and spirals. And, it's yeah. out of control. I think I mean, people... like out of all the cases you could have read about first, I mean, Fred and Rose West is <laughs> quite a disturbing one. Yeah. I think mm-hmm. there's like there's two kinds of people. You the people who either get like two or three pages into true crime and then and give it up for life. Yeah. Or people who just can't put the book down yeah. and then they're just like thirsty for it the yeah. rest of their yeah. life. It seems like there's no in between. No. Either people are obsessed with reading about true crime or people are absolutely disgusted by yeah. it. Yeah. I love the people too that they they hate true crime, but every TV show they watch is like a crime drama. And it's like, <laughs> yes. So it can't be real, but I all I want to see is crime. Yeah. Yeah. That's my mom. <laughs> uh, the ones that love Dexter, but are horrified by the thought of reading about yeah. real crime. About real yeah. Dexter, yeah. Yeah. But then there's people like me who's obsessed with true crime, will not watch horror movies. Too scary. <laughs> Really? Yeah. Oh, no, I love horror, but Same. I'm kind of thinking. Yeah, right. Yeah, I'm, like, I'm making my boyfriend watch the entire Conjuring series, and we're almost done the Annabelle movies, and uh, I, I oh, just... Oh, no, say I don't like paranormal. Ah, okay. Yeah, no, I don't. That's, that's no, like I like the horror, top. but not paranormal. <laughs> okay, that's fair. So, how quickly did you get into writing about true crime? I mean, you said you were pretty damn young when you started stealing your mom's books, but... <laughs> that sounds so... So weird. <laughs> but, um, it's a true crime. I don't know. Um, about it. I actually started, believe it or not, with a Tumblr blog. Nice. If anybody knows what that is. I think I must have only been about 17. So it's kind of like Twitter. There's like a big community on Tumblr of people that enjoy reading about true crime. And I think I was probably around 17 or so. And I just started writing like short articles up on there. And then it wasn't until 2017 that I created Morbidology. And for those who may not be familiar with the website, it's just a website where I write about a variety of different crimes as well as history stories and just really anything that falls under the bizarre category. So when did you decide to move from like blogging and stuff or mm-hmm. Tumblr uh, stuff to professional writing? It's actually kind of funny because, see, when I was in school... I don't know if it's the same for you guys, but like, see, when I was in school, I absolutely despised writing. I don't know if <laughs> yes. maybe that's because yeah. it was, yes. I didn't have the imagination for it. I mean, like, you don't really get taught in school about nonfiction writing. It's all fiction writing. And I, I couldn't do it. I was not interested. But it was when I started studying the psychology of criminal profiling that I started to truly enjoy writing about crime just as much as I enjoyed studying it and researching it, but... I thought you were going to say just as much as you enjoyed doing crime. <laughs> uh, um, I enjoyed it. <laughs> glad that went the other way. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> just stealing mom's books. Got it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That, that's, 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 a, that's about as far as I went. <laughs> Horrible crime. Could be worse. <laughs> you could not signal when you turn your car. It's oh. pretty bad. People over here so so bad for that. So so bad. <laughs> They're pretty bad here too. Really? Oh my oh, god. Goodness. People just don't know how to drive anywhere in the world. I don't think. Yeah. It's what I've decided. CR, yeah, CR roads here. They're so so small too. If you ever come to Ireland, you're going to be horrified. I'm used to yeah, big, wide, fat North American yeah. roads. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So how did you go about getting your first book deal? I mean, that's um, uh, not easy for a lot of people to do. No, I was actually very very lucky in that sense that. 
I actually got my first book deal through Tumblr, pretty much. No way, and that's awesome. Wow. I know, I know. People are always like, what? I don't even know what Tumblr really is. <laughs> I'm too it's old. Kind of like, <laughs> it's, I'm, I'm even too old now for it, but it's like a platform where people, they post photos, they, they you can write stuff on it. Like, it's kind of like a journal in a way. But um, I think it was back in, it must, my book came out in 2017 and it took two years to write. So it must have been around 2014 to 2015 that I actually got a message from my first publisher, who is McFarland & Co. They're like a non-fiction publisher in America. And um, they discovered my blog online and they discovered my writing online. And they sent me a sent me a message and asked for my email address and I and I sent it over and there was a bit of back and forth and then they asked if I'd be interested in writing a true crime book for them, so I had to kind of they they, they kind of just said would you be interested I said yes do you have any ideas, so they kind of threw a few ideas at me and then I had to write like a proposal and the proposal had to include like a three sample chapters a draft introduction a draft table of contents and stuff like that and then Holy. i sent it over yeah i kind of sent it over thinking they're not going to be interested like i don't do professional because by that point all i've been doing is writing on tumblr i hadn't really i didn't have morbidology i didn't have the podcast and that was really the first thing so i sent it over and then they replied being like yeah that sounds good and then sent a contract over so it was wow it was very very lucky like I know how lucky that is because like it, it must be very hard trying to find your own publisher oh yeah well you just listen to any author or just even musicians or whatever and trying to get signed for anything is always such a hard oh, thing to do yeah. mm-hmm, exactly so that's that's pretty amazing yeah it, I was very very lucky and that's actually I got to write for Dorling Kindersley as well. Like, if I didn't do the first book, then I I don't think I would have been able to do any of the other ones because Dorling Kindersley, which is my publisher for um, Unsolved Murders and Cult Uncovered, sent me an email after finding the book on Amazon and kind of was like, hey, do you want to write a book for us? We have an idea. And I was like, yes. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's so cool that it just... Uh just because of Amazon or whatever, they were able to find you and they liked yeah. it so much that they wanted to I hire you. Yeah, I, I was like, what? Because I've grown up I've grown up reading Dorling Kindersley books. Like, it was, it was quite a surprise. That's even better then. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I guess, uh, can you talk kind of a little bit about your first couple books then? Just tell, uh, tell the people a little bit about what to expect when they uh, pick them up. You know, maybe start with the, what was the first one again? The... Unsolved Child Murders? First one, Unsolved Child Murders, is obviously about unsolved child murders. It's estimated that third of murders in the United States alone go unsolved. So it oh. goes without saying. Yeah, the, the statistics are quite scary. I didn't really realize how many it was until I started sitting down and researching it. So it goes without saying that the murder of anybody is completely abhorrent, but the murder of a child is particularly poignant children yeah children are obviously among the most vulnerable within the community and understandably a lot of people turn the other way when a child is murdered and i don't mean that in like an insensitive way but it's because it's so distressing to read about you know there's a lot of times you'll see things about child or children being killed 
and people will turn the news off or they won't read the article because it's it's tough to read but yeah. as you know as you know yourself as a as a podcast a true crime podcast public knowledge truly is key when it comes to solving cold cases so that's why i kind of thought i want to do a book on something that like i knew when i was writing it that there was a lot of people that would look at the title and just be like no that's not for me which is you know that's that's fair enough it's a, same as when you do a podcast yeah a true crime podcast if you cover a case that involves a child there's a lot of people that will just read the description and be like no that's not for me i don't want to listen to that because it's just depressing but um, anyway, the book consists of both more well-known cases, but there's also a lot of obscure ones. As you've, I don't know if you've read it, but I know you've got it. So there's the uh, Rick Runyon case and the Levi Frady case, which are both more obscure. Like you probably know who they are, but they're not as well-known as like um, John Benet Ramsey or Adam Walsh. Yeah. There's actually a few that have been solved since then. Um, the April Tinsley case has been solved with um, paraben. Nice. Um, it's like where they take the DNA. It's more advanced DNA technology. They can take someone's DNA and it can kind of build a profile of what they look like. But it's more realistic than like your average. Like it can t- determine like skin tone and like it's freckles and stuff like that. Fuck. So it's... Yeah. <laughs> You should Google it after. It's absolutely insane. Like, it, it's just very more advanced. And um, also, there's the Chris Tina Marie Williams case. And um, the guy that was charged with it, he was charged, I think it was last year. And he, he's only just gone on trial. Like, I think it was at the start of this month. But he's mentioned in the book because I think he was like a long standing suspect, but they could never really get any hard evidence to convict him but they've got dna now so it'll be interesting to see how that one turns out mm-hmm. and then i wrote my second book with amber hunt the journalist she's a journalist for the cincinnati Enquirer, and she is the creator of the podcast accused so um true crime cases uncovered details 21 different unsolved murder cases from the 20th and 21st century the book gives a description of each case along with any forensic evidence and the psychological profile of the killer. It was actually the first book that I've ever co-authored and I do think that it was an amazing, I don't know if you've read it, but Not if you yet, do read it, you'll, you'll notice like it's a very good collaboration because Amber and myself, we have such a, a similar writing style that you can't actually tell that two people have written the book. If you ever read something that's co-authored by somebody, especially when it's a book that covers a bunch of different cases, and like one author writes one one chapter, another author writes another chapter, you can sometimes tell because people have such varying author styles, that writing styles, that it'll just, it won't flow. Do you know what I mean? But I think Dorling Kindersley, because they approached both of us, I think that they um they Matched did such a good yeah. yeah, they did such a good job of finding two authors that flowed together, if you know what I mean. It didn't it didn't it wasn't obvious that two people were writing it. The only uh the only book I've really read I think that had the dual author thing set up was um the Talisman series by Stephen King and Peter Straub. But I've with, never with read them that. they uh I think Stephen King actually did the majority of the writing and then Peter did more of 
the uh, fleshing out the idea and stuff with Steven, uh, and then I think some of the editing. So even them, they knew that they their writing styles were so different, but they had similar ideas of yeah how stories should go, so they could work yeah. together. But one still did most of the writing, I think. Mm-hmm. It's a good I've series, though, if that. you like Stephen King. I do. I've I've read some stuff. I have it, but I've I've not got around to reading it yet because it is so big. If if it you want to read a really good book, but you don't aren't too scared it. of what's going on right now in the world, read The Stand. Mm. <laughs> it the is stand. such an epic book, but it's about a friggin' plague that wiped out most of, most of the population no, of the you. world. <laughs> no, no, so, yeah. I think I'll skip. Let's skip it I'll for skip now. That for a few months. <laughs> Maybe in six months' time. Exactly. Once the world gets back on track. Yeah, maybe then. <laughs> so let's uh, talk about your newest book then, Cults Uncovered, the stories yeah. of mind control and murder. Yes. How did it come about that you wrote about uh, cults for this book? Um, same as the other book by Dorling Kindersley. I was approached by Dorling Kindersley with the idea of Cults Uncovered, and they asked if I would be interested in writing it for them, and of course I said yes. First of all, I love writing for Dorling Kindersley. They're such a good publisher. They're so helpful along the way as well. And I'm very lucky to be given the opportunity. But um, I especially jumped at the chance to write this book in particular because I feel I feel as though in the aftermath of a cult, I mean, you probably know this yourself. You've covered cults. People are, they're very quick to dismiss cult followers as naive, gullible, kooky fanatics, pretty much. And um, I feel as though that's just a sad, sad misconception. And it's something I feel strongly about. And it's something I wanted to get across with Cults Uncovered. People that join cults are, they're not, they're they're normal people. They're no different than you or I. People, People that join cults, they join them more often than not for the very best motives. And it all boils down to um, manipulation. Yeah. Cult leaders mercilessly take advantage of the desires that a lot of people share, a longing for a purpose, a family, a higher being. Cult leaders will they'll weaken their followers by isolating them from their friends and their families, which in turn, it makes them feel as though they depend on a cult to survive. So pretty much anybody, as, as I'm sure you, you've covered cults in one of your episodes, haven't you? Yeah, one you? of our very yeah. early episodes, yeah. Yeah. I mean, pretty much anybody can be victimized. Oh, heck yeah. By a cult. Yeah, they can anybody because it's easy for people to fall into a vulnerable state. And it's when somebody's in a vulnerable state that somebody else is able to maintain more influence over them than usual. So... More often than not, cult followers are they're normal people that have been made vulnerable by certain situations or personality traits. Um, that's that's why cults, they can often, you've, you've, I'm sure you've noticed, they can often pop up during social or political upheaval. Yeah. A prime example would be the upheaval of the, 60, the 1960s. So the 1960s, it created the perfect conditions for Charles Manson mm-hmm. to flourish as a hippie guru. Yeah. He, yeah. he was able to attract young people that were disenchanted with their own lives, who had been running from a world racked with bitter clashes over the United States' involvement with the Vietnam War, mm-hmm. as well as 
civil rights tensions. I think I think quite often it can be comforting for people to feel as though there's like a an awesome of them and and disregard cult followers as naive, kooky, crazy fanatics because it makes people feel that it could never happen to them. And I think that was something like I've I've written about cults in the past, never a book obviously. But I've always had strong feelings about them. So when I was given the opportunity, I, I kind of jumped at it. <laughs> yeah, no, definitely. But a few of the things that you said, like match the research that I'd done. Um, the story that I focused on was on Jonestown, obviously Jim Jones. So exactly. it's definitely speaking about isolation and making people feel mm-hmm. that, you know, this is their new family now. This yeah. is this is where you're at. So I think that definitely... I think Jonestown's a prime example of that. Yeah. Like it's a prime example of social upheaval that you know they thought they were going to join something because it kind of started out as you know like a, a civil rights movement near enough almost yeah. people thought they were joining something that was a good cause and then he just mercilessly took advantage of it which happens so often i wonder with yep. the upheaval of the world right now with covid19 i wonder if uh, oh, we get a bunch of cults out of this bullshit too like toilet paper cults. Oh. Yeah, the cult of toilet paper has already happened ridiculous <laughs> <laughs> yeah or the lysol wipe cult like everyone's yes. buying them up and selling them on fucking ebay assholes. that's just wrong at least they've actually locked it down all of uh, ebay amazon, um, amazon um, craigslist, craigslist uh, up in the state, okay. up in Okanagan, yeah. there's uh, another one. Um, I forget what it's called now, but all, all of them are locking down the price gouging. I think they're even stopping sales of yeah. things like toilet paper and uh, ridiculous. You're not allowed to sell that stuff on those forums anymore. Someone yeah. was yeah. selling a roll of uh, toilet paper for fifty dollars. Yeah. yeah. <gasps> oh, that's disgusting. Yeah. yeah. I saw that as well, but I heard it was. Um, it was just some asshole thinking he was funny. Oh, okay. yeah. Well, yeah. he is an really? asshole yeah. and not funny. No. Yeah. Ag- agreed. Yeah. yeah. Um, I hadn't even thought about that, though. Like, the way I was saying about social and political upheaval and what's going on now, you know, it, it could be. <laughs> In the aftermath, it could be. The, yeah. ooh, I, I mean, I'm, I'm getting nonstop emails from companies and stuff about how what to deal doing, with this. Yeah. And it's just like, oh, holy God, shit, yeah. it's not yeah. stopping. So I can see that. Like, it, this is a unprecedented worldwide phenomenon right now that we haven't seen probably since the 60s with the civil rights movement and stuff so who knows what could happen out of this i don't know know, it's nice though that that it's kind of a worldwide thing because all we've been worried about is brexit there's kind of a (laughs) you know a worldwide pandemic now that everyone's panicking about it's not just us panicking about brexit yeah no shit (laughs) I don't know. I think social media has a big part to play with everyone's fears right now because, yeah, you know, 10, 15 years ago, not everyone and their dog had access to a Twitter, to a page, yeah. to this, to post mm-hmm. what their ideas yeah. are. But like when SARS was going on here, SARS had a deeper impact here in Canada than COVID does right now. So far. But it, yeah. yeah. But even still, like, even if you like follow a timeline of both, uh, SARS was much worse, but right. we didn't have social media like we do now. Yeah. That's so the, same the panic with, wasn't as big. Same with H1N1. I was working yes. at Burnaby General Hospital during the time, and it was just, just proceed. Just, you know what? It's fine. Mm-hmm. You didn't see everyone in the news or like, don't go to work. But I was, was just like, you know, make sure you change your gloves. <laughs> like, yeah. and, uh, nothing. <laughs> Wash your nothing goddamn major. hands. Is that too mm-hmm. much to ask? Nothing I mean, crazy. do that anyway. <laughs> yeah. Anyways, yeah, going back to uh, Cults Uncovered, um, 
you know, personally, when I was doing like a bunch of the research for Jonestown, I found it really difficult to put everything together because there's so much. Was oh, there any yeah. like particular case in this book where it was hard to research or just hard to kind of find good sources, I guess? Um, as you mentioned there, Jonestown, a lot of the mainstream cults mm-hmm. like Jonestown and Heaven's Gate was another another one. They right. have, as you, as you know, they have so many FBI files right. that are already public due to the Freedom of Information Act. But then there's the more obscure ones and um, they're always more difficult to research because sometimes you've got to you've got to file the request yourself. But um, the main one was the movement for the restoration of the Ten Commandments of God was particularly tough to research because mm-hmm. there was so much like there's just limited information but that that's quite often the case with lesser known cases and especially those that will take place in foreign countries there's a lot of translating and with the narco satanists too that was that was quite difficult to research but that was more to do with the sensationalism did you ever have you ever covered that no not yet no it's well it's it's a horrible horrible case but there's so much sensationalism, but that's always the case when it comes to something involving the occult. But when, it's, it's mo- yeah. mostly anything. It's not English. It's hard trying to... Because we don't have, like, anything that happens in, say, it's got something... If, the, if America is investigating, so, like, the FBI, like Jonestown, right. you'll be able to file a Freedom of Information um, request for it, but... um. With with foreign ones, it's 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 always harder. And you can't just go and interview people as well, which is no. always tough. Yeah, no, absolutely not. When um, kind of picking the cults for the book, was there one that you found like particularly like shocking, interesting, or like I don't know your favorite? I guess Fa- I don't um, know, use favorite lightly. No, I know what you mean. I hate using the term favorite. I'm, like if, when it's, when someone's like, "Oh, I've got your book," I'm like, "Oh, I hope you enjoy it." And then, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't hope you enjoy it, but you you don't know what to say. Oh but, no, um, you don't. No, it's it's so awkward when someone's like, "I love your podcast." You're like, "Oh, really?" I don't know what to say. I don't know what to say. I hate using to favorite and like and um, but um, I think the Kirtland cult was probably the most interesting to research purely because I know I when I started writing about it, I knew absolutely nothing about the case. Um, with cults, there's so many mainstream ones that when you hear about one you've never heard of, you're like, what? Yeah, exactly. Yes. Yeah. yeah, because cults are they're so fascinating. It's not just like there's there's probably hundreds of thousands of murders you've never written about or read about or know anything about, but when it's a cult, you're like, hmm. So I think that one was probably... It's nice just to, you know, start from scratch when writing about something and you've not read about it before. Right. You've never written about it before, so you've kind of got like a like a clean slate a clean slate yeah clean slate so to speak the um the Ant Hill kids that, that was, was a oh, fucked up, up yes man. I know you guys have covered that before <laughs> I was just research and I was like what am I reading that right yeah <laughs> that is oh, that one so the the Kirtland cult just because I knew nothing about it and then like in terms of brutality the most shocking one it, it's got to be the Ant Hill kids <laughs> Well, yeah, and the Ant Hill Kids is something, like, you could just record that as a true crime movie and, you know, <laughs> advertise it, it as a real. horror film. Yeah. 
I'm yes. actually surprised so it's not a horror, horror film yet. And I mean, yeah. usually Canada's considered that like friendly, nice place, and that that's one of the worst cults oh I've ever God. heard of. And it's from our country. Yeah, and it's I've never so heard of it. <laughs> Yes, you have, because we did an episode on I it. I wasn't part of your guys' <laughs> episode. I joined Oh, my God, Nina, you didn't you listen to, to our back catalog? I did not. I only I'm started offended. listening from when I joined. Sorry. Nina, you're oh, fired. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck. I'm oh, going to sit here with my loggers that are nice, crisp, and clean and sipping away. Look what boys. you started, Emily. <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh, do you think that the cult leaders that start up these awful cults are actually believers in, you know, the in my opinion, nonsense that they're spouting? <laughs> or is it just about the power? Mm. Um, honestly, it really differs cult leader to cult leader. You've got, you've got the cult leaders that, that, are, that obviously do believe in their own doctrine. Um, a prime example would probably be Marshall Applewhite from Heaven's Gate. Yep. So I don't doubt that he and his followers fervently believe that after ending their lives they, they would be ascending to a better place via spaceship in the wake of the incoming Hal Bopp comet. I believe that Apple White, I think he wanted people to join him because he, he genuinely believed that what he was saying was true and he genuinely believed that if people followed him and joined his cult that they would get to go to the better place with him but then maybe Maybe there's some kind of weird element of a, of a savior complex in there. But I think he's probably an exception to the rule, especially in the cults covered in my book. Yeah. Because more often than not, they're, they're mostly pathologically narcissistic. And in their own minds, they're often convinced that they're special and they're the chosen one. I think that some cult leaders, I think they do believe their own doctrine, but at the same time, as a cult grows and expands, I think having the ability to exert power and control over somebody can turn dangerous. I guess that that kind of goes, though, for like not just the cult, but for, for any group or organization. If you've got the ability to exert power over somebody, you can use that for all kinds of horrible stuff. Absolutely. <laughs> not just cults. <laughs> no. All right, well, where can people find out more about your books and kind of all your work that you do? Probably the best place would be my website, morbidology.com, shameless plug. But there's <laughs> Shamelessly there's plug as much as you can. <laughs> there's information on there about my books, my podcast, and um, just other stuff that I write, other articles. But you can just kind of... If you're interested in just the books, you can Google Emily Thompson, Emily G. Thompson or Morbidology. And the books are sold on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Waterstones, pretty much all bookstores. Perfect. All right. Well, let's get into our first story then for this episode. So we're going to pass this off to Beck. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Sunshine, lollipops, and rainbows <laughs> everywhere is not what you will find in the 
Solar Temple. <laughs> it's, you're fucking ridiculous. I know. Okay, so I'm. Re- I thought it was going to be something sad you're going to talk no. about. So I'm like, oh, we can't be laughing while we're talking about like children being murdered. No. And you're just like, us. Oh, I mean, that's a good rule, but no. Okay, so I'm reporting today on the cult, the Solar Temple. And the beer that I chose is called Rapture of Folly, Ooh. and it's a cherry sour. It's a sour beer with real cherries. So it is brewed with wheat and soured with lactobacillus. Mike, help me out. Lactobacillus, yeah. <laughs> we, Bless you. Yeah. It's like a Harry we Potter created, spell. Yeah. <laughs> we created this light and refreshing sour ale using only real cherries. This rose-colored beer is tart, naturally sweet, and smells of cherry, strawberry, wheat, and a touch of citrus. And it's from TWA dogs twa dogs twa dogs thanks mike twat dogs which is the new caledonian (laughs) distillery and brewery in victoria bc Mm -hmm. (laughs) yes so i have clearly never had this since i made two errors already in reading a paragraph of information good let's hear your story (laughs) so it's a five and a half percent alcohol beer it is kind of coppery orange white head or off white head smells of cherry. You can get a hint of the fact that there's going to be some tartness in it. On the flavor, it's definitely tart cherry. Maybe some lemon citrusy notes. Um, it's definitely a little bit puckering. Still some sweetness to it. But it's nice and easy to drink. It's definitely less uh, pink-ish than I expected. Yeah, I know. It's it's like copper. It's it's not actually awful. It's just really sour. Mm. Yeah, it's 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 good. Tart. <laughs> yeah, I'll pour more shortly. Okay, here we go. I have goosebumps like my entire body with every sip. <laughs> it's too sour. Order du Temple Solaire, or Order of the Solar Temple in English, is a cult or religion, depending on who you ask. Since I don't actually know what the difference is, because it's debatable. Uh, <laughs> it's based on the ideals of the Knights Templar. It was started by Joseph de Mambro and Luc Jure in 1984 in Geneva as L'Ordre International Chevaleresque de Tradition Solaire and later renamed Ordre de Temple Solaire. <laughs> I'll be calling it OST from now on as the less French that I attempt, the better. For all of us. But that yeah. means it's a, a spin-off of the Catholic Church then, because the Knights Templar were a Catholic organization way, way, way back in the day. Yeah, until the Pope was like, fuck you guys, you have too much money, and now I'm going to tell everyone that you are like devil worshippers and shit. Oh, yeah. That's never happened before. Yeah. So... There were many OST locations around the world, but I'll just be talking about a few of the more infamous ones. Very mixed bag of beliefs. Uh, Catholicism, Rosicrucian, bit of Egyptian, a dash of shamanism, and how about some UFO? Sure, why not? I love UFOs. (laughs) And of course, it just isn't a cult without at least a pinch of doomsday scenarios. They combined all of this with the Templar-like mystical rituals, all the regalia, the strict hierarchy uh, adapted from Freemason rituals. Um, 
And the, the hierarchy was levels and grades. So there's three grades per level. And the lowest level is the Brothers of Parvis. Sexist. Okay. Uh, <laughs> the Knights of the Alliance. And the highest level is the Brothers of the Ancient Times. Its top 33 members were known as the Elder Brothers of the Rosy Cross. Rossy Cross. Um, Do you know Emily? What was that? It's R O S Y. And I'm like, am I expected I'm not sure to pronounce, pronounce that as it. Rosy or Rossy? I'm not Rosé. sure. It sounds more French. I feel like. It's Rosé. probably, yeah, That's it's probably. Your guess is as good as mine, how to pronounce it. <laughs> cool. Yours might sound more fun. I've not. I'm just looking at I've not picked a picked a French case because trying to pronounce anything French in a in a Belfast accent is <laughs> It's hard for us too and we've got French people across the world. Yeah. <laughs> I mean I'm from yeah, Ontario. You're, you're probably so. know better than I do. <laughs> yeah. I have no excuse. I, I know bonjour and tabernacle and that's the only French words I know. I so know I can say hello and f- like basically fuck. So uh, I can say voulez vous coucher avec moi. <laughs> I just have to YouTube everything that I cover on my podcast because oh, I don't know how to pronounce anything. <laughs> I do that sometimes, but then I'm like, you know what? If I don't know, that's fine. It'll be more funny to say the wrong thing sometimes. <laughs> the headquarters were in Zurich, Switzerland. Um, the Council of the Order formed lodges that were run by a regional commander and three elders. Anybody want to guess how the members moved up through the hierarchy? By murdering people. Don't no. know. Hmm? By drinking goat blood. Financial donations. Oh, Ooh. shit. That was going to be my next one. That's how you know it's legit. Yeah. Right? Money, money, money. Uh, uh, isn't that how you become money. higher in the governments, too, these days? Yeah. <laughs> That's a good point. So every grade up involved a, an elaborate ritual, which entailed jewelry, costumes, and all the regalia, and each initiate had to pay for all of that, plus an initiation fee. For each grade that they wanted to move up. So that sounds like Can you like skip grades? <laughs> like, can you go from, like, Gandalf the Great to Gandalf the, the Great? Well, no, because <laughs> he goes white, great, whatever. Can you just skip all of them if you have, like, a bajillion dollars? Or do you have to still pay at each increment? I'm going to come back to that because it's <laughs> in here. Okay, yeah. go. Later. It depends who you are. During ceremonies... Uh, members wore robes and were directed to hold in awe a sword which Joseph de Mambro said was an authentic Templar ar- artifact. Ooh. And as if that wasn't amazing enough, the artifact had been given to Joseph a thousand years ago in a previous life. Isn't that amazing? That sounds good to me. I mean, yeah, I'd love a sword from a thousand years ago that was given to me a thousand years ago in a previous life. Yeah, well, and it's a good thing he held on to it for a thousand years because it would have been really awkward if he'd like given it away a hundred years ago, and then it's like shit. Now I need it. This is how hoarding starts. <laughs> I have nothing to say to that. Of course, they didn't present themselves all doomsday and candlelit ritual right off the bat. Uh, to new people, they promoted fulfillment, love, well-being. And as new members became ingrained in the group, they were introduced to things like the belief that death through fire uh, would purify your soul and result in a new life on Sirius. Sirius being the brightest star in the night sky. Oh, okay. Which is pretty typical, I think, for cults where 
you know, the intense stuff that they believe in isn't in the brochure. Of course not. Luke was a Belgian-born physician who was not only reincarnated from the time of the Templars, he was also a reincarnation of Jesus. Mm. So that's cool. He split his time between Quebec, France, and Switzerland. Uh, He began recruiting followers in the 1980s, but it wasn't until 1986 that they moved to Quebec. They moved the headquarters to Quebec. Yeah. And it was after they were all living together that he started preaching impending doom and the end of days. The group began wearing long hooded robes, some of which had the red cross of the Templars on it. Mm-hmm. That just sounds cozy, though, doesn't it? <laughs> like when it's all rainy and cold and just in like a big Snuggie. As an owner of a Snuggie, I can confirm this message. <laughs> Uh, The group was very secretive, but by 1993, they were being investigated for illegal weapons and suspicion of an assassination plot against the provincial public security minister. Hmm. You'd think Jesus 2.0 would know better, but (laughs) (laughs) uh, I guess not. I I don't know. Jesus did his own thing back in the day, I hear, too. Yeah. (laughs) Moving on. The police raided the cult's crypt, which was in a different ski village near Morin Heights, which is a small skiing village in Quebec, where they lived. Luke was charged with multiple weapons offenses and fled to Switzerland. Many of his followers moved not long after as they believed that the police presence in the crypt had permanently contaminated its sacredness. Yeah. No, I don't want it. You ruined it. I hate you forever. We're moving to Switzerland. (laughs) Don't ever do that voice again. (laughs) It doesn't match your face. Good. (laughs) So Morin Heights is uh, north of Montreal. It's a tourist town, mostly known for skiing, or at least that's what it was known for before October 4th, 1994, when a fire broke out in a house that left five people dead. Oh, shit. While this in itself is a tragedy, it was the details of the fire that would become infamous. After the fire was put out, it was initially thought that only two lives had been lost, but upon further inspection, the investigators found three more bodies in an adjacent building. They were the bodies of Nicky Dutois, who was a former cult member that used to make the ceremonial capes and robes, uh, her husband Tony Dutois, also a former cult member, and their three-month-old son, Emmanuel. Nikki was stabbed eight times in the back, four times in the throat, and once in each breast. Tony was beaten over the head with what investigators believe was a baseball bat or something similar. His throat was slashed ear to ear, and he was stabbed 50 times in the chest. That sounds like overkill to me. <laughs> it gets worse. Mm-hmm. Emmanuel that poor baby, had been stabbed repeatedly with a wooden stake. Oh, it's not a vampire. Yeah. The fire had been deliberately set, probably to conceal the murders, but not all of the incendiary devices that had been set off actually... um, Lit? Yeah, lit. I don't know what word to use there. Sorry. Or at least it didn't burn as long as the perpetrator had hoped. Sorry, what, what year was this again? 94. 
Okay, was, was this before check. or after 94. forensic files? Because, I mean, they should fucking know. A like, a fire isn't going to hide the fact that you stabbed someone, like, a bajillion fucking times. Yeah. Anyways. It is believed that Joseph de Mambro ordered the murders. He had identified Emmanuel as the Antichrist and believed that he was born to prevent Joseph from succeeding in his spiritual aims. These horrible deaths in Quebec were only the tip of the iceberg. The following day, police in Switzerland found 23 more bodies in a burnt farmhouse in Canton Fribourg and another 25 in Canton Valais. Some had been murdered and some had completed suicide. This brought the death toll to 53. Wow. Yeah. Amongst the dead were some socially significant people from Quebec, uh, including a journalist from the Quebec City newspaper, a senior advisor in the Quebec Finance Ministry, as well as the mayor of Richelieu and his wife. So, Emily, like you were saying, it could be anyone. It's not just like, you know, oh, yeah. naive Cookie people. fanatics. Yeah, people that are, yeah. It always, you know, you, you look at it and go, oh my God, like they've got to be cuckoo. They've but got yeah, it, it could yeah. be anyone. Yeah, people, people, people think, oh, there must have been something wrong with them or they were naive and gullible. But as I said, it can happen to anyone. It's like a perfect storm, right? Like it's just different circumstances that lead you to where you're at. And then. Pretty much, yeah. Just, yeah. It's also that these leaders know who to invite. You know what I mean? They can see they can see the kind of people who are going to follow them, you know? Yeah. Yeah. You look for people that are looking for something more in their life. Yeah, I mean, exactly. It's, it's not much people different are- than the uh, like the basically the quote unquote cult of gang life too. I mean, it's yeah. kids that have usually a bad family life and they're looking for something different. Mm-hmm. They're looking for somewhere to belong yeah. and they find a group. Mm-hmm. That's why you'll find that quite often like a prime example would be Waco they'll sometimes recruit in colleges because it's young impressionable people that have moved to a new city moved to a new state and they don't know anyone yeah so they're impressionable and they're vulnerable so two of the 48 found in Switzerland were the aforementioned founders of the group Luc Jure 46, and Joseph de Mambro, 70 at the time. So clearly they were, like we were talking about earlier, do these people just want power or do they actually believe what they're preaching? And clearly these two did believe it. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, many, many of the others had been arranged in a circle with their heads facing outwards. So Luke and Joseph preached that death through fire was the only way to go, but many of the dead were drugged and had plastic bags mm-hmm. placed over their heads, mm-hmm. and others had just been shot in the head, uh, which, you know, led investigators to believe that maybe something they, bad happened. They weren't all mm-hmm. willingly. participating in this willingly. Yeah. Yep. The inner circle leaders had taken poison. Farewell letters stated that they were leaving to escape the, quote, hypocrisies and oppression of this world. Hmm. On December 23rd, 1995, so like a year later, uh, 16 more were found dead in a star formation. It was suicide by gun and fire in the Vercos Mountains in France. 
And one of the 16 was a prior Winter Olympian. Oh. Uh, in March 1997, police discovered five burned bodies believed to be connected to the same group. They were in the small town of St. Casimir, about 80 kilometers from Quebec City. It was found that these cult members were disappointed that they hadn't joined the original group in Switzerland or France, uh, so they committed suicide together. Three teenagers, aged 13, 14, and 16, they were the children of one of the couples that were found dead in the fire, uh, were discovered in a shed behind the house, uh, alive, but they'd been drugged so that they couldn't stop their parents from doing this. But you wonder even at that age, like, I think they obviously know what is happening, Mm -hmm. but difference of knowing and like actually understanding yeah. Why their parents and like their parents' friends that are over what whatever the case may be, what's happening. Yeah. It's like a lot of years of therapy to try to even like recover from that for those kids. I'm curious where they're at now. Yeah. And it could be that the parents were like, This is the right decision for me but it's like their kids are just old enough. Like they don't want to make the decision for them. Yeah. Well, mm-hmm. it's interesting you say that because obviously later on when I go about my impede about Jonestown, mm-hmm. you know, it's I think I don't have my notes out, but I'll whip them out later. But I think it's like 230 something kids, mm-hmm. children that died. Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't know that the majority of those parents mm, gave Consider that decision yeah. to their children. Mind you, some mm-hmm. were very, very young, but regardless. Yeah, I'd say it, that's a, if that was the case, in my case, it's pretty damn rare. Mm-hmm. That they left their kids uh, continue their lives. Yeah. Yeah. So with so many horrible deaths, including both founding members, uh, you would think the cult was no longer active, but that's not actually the case. According to a very in-depth study on the website World Religions and Spirituality, there are still many Neo-Templar groups, but none specifically identifying themselves as OST. So while I agree with OST that the world is full of hypocrisies, I don't think that murdering innocent people was any way to solve that, obviously. No, not really. So yeah, that is them. Fun. Yeah. Crazy bastards. Yeah, it's a really grim case. It sure is. But at least we had my horrible, horrible singing at the beginning. (laughs) Yeah, I'm trying to decide what was worse. Oh no. (laughs) I walked into that. Okay. Uh, why not both? Can yeah. we get a reprise? Like, sing it again? No. no. <laughs> but maybe you can send now. that to me, the recording, and then I'll put it as my ringtone for whenever Beck messages me. There we go. That's fun. And Sounds then I'll good. just throw my phone out the window. <laughs> Anyways. Can do. Okay. Cool. Well, thanks for sharing that. Yeah. And no thank you. Um, hard cool. pass. Hard pass. Oh, sure. On your cult. Let's see if the next one's interesting to me. All right. Mm-hmm. Well, let's get ready for the next one. This episode has been brought to you by Best Fiends. The world has gone mad and social distancing is the new norm. So why not pick up the best puzzle game and work out your brain? Best Fiends makes it fun to play in the garden, even from the safety of your living room. So team up with all of your little bug friends to take on the slugs. So match up the color tiles and toss them at the slugs to get in your way. Pairs of three are all you need to take them out. While you're at it, you can use bombs to blow up even more tiles to send more damage to the slugs. Currently, the levels I am playing have light bulbs that match the colors of the tiles and add new complexity to the levels. 
When you meet the level's goals, like killing slugs, you collect resources that you can use to upgrade your bug friends. You never have to, but if you want to progress faster, you can always buy more resources with microtransactions. I am currently on level 420 and keep on trucking along. It's also time to collect shamrocks, which are part of the Lucky Leprechaun hunt. The more you collect, the more rewards you receive. I keep pulling this game out daily to try and progress even further in the game. It is just too fun not to load it up on your phone, and I love the fact that you do not need an internet connection to play. Now this isn't a hardcore game like so many gamers play, but just a casual puzzle game. You can come and go as you please and enjoy the bugs, slugs, and the cool look of the game. I used to play other games on my phone, but this is now the only game I load up. Engage your brain with fun puzzles and collect tons of cute characters. Trust me, with over 100 million downloads, this 5-star rated mobile puzzle game is a must-play. Download Best Fiends free on the Apple App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R. Best Fiends. So, the case that I'm covering for this episode is the Kirtland Cult. Kirtland is it's a ruling farming community of around 6,000 residents. It's located approximately 30 miles east of Cleveland in Ohio. Okay, it sounds, um, it sounds a little bit like Kirkland brand from Costco. Yeah, yeah <laughs> that's what I was thinking. We don't get Costco here. Oh, so. you're lucky. You don't get all the uh, the crazy uh, stocking up of toilet paper then. Mm-hmm. Oh, no, we do. No, we, <laughs> Just we do. <laughs> it's funny. There is not sheet of toilet paper to be found anyway i, I genuinely hope that like one of these people who bought a lifetime supply of toilet paper for three weeks literally shits themselves 10 <laughs> times a day because <laughs> if, if they're not buying what are they expecting? if they're not buying food you're not going to go poops yeah. and, <laughs> but let's let's be honest right like if nothing's going in your mouth nothing's yeah. coming out of your downstairs science, science. Yeah. and i know this is pretty like magic school busy here but the, the, the flow of the stuff anyways um <laughs> Yeah, it's it's very curious. But you gotta go in to come out. That's yeah, just yeah. A fact. there. There was a meme out there about uh, it was like uh, a family sitting around the dinner table and I eating what toilet the name paper. Was. But yeah, it was just like, yeah. why don't we have food, mommy? And it's like, shut up shut and eat up your and toilet paper. <laughs> I, I don't. I genuinely just don't understand what the the toilet paper so much toilet stuff paper. is about. But you know, whatever. Good riddance, right? Yeah. Like at the end of the day, like if my worst problem is going to be that I have a stinky bum, like yeah, it's okay. We're good. <laughs> But I just feel bad for people who are just like, I. it was just time to buy toilet paper, and uh, I can't. The, the first day of the, of the TP crisis, which I was unaware of, because I don't have a fucking toilet paper problem. Uh, my mom's the one who owns a Costco card, and we went to Costco. We're like, what is this madness? And we saw the toilet paper. I'm like, shit, toilet paper's on sale. And we grabbed like a, a, a thingamajig of toilet paper, but it, then we realized it was a, a shitpocalypse. And that's why everyone was getting fucking toilet paper. Anyways, needless to say, I have toilet paper in my house. Please don't come rob me. <laughs> yeah, all, all the home invasions now are going to be for toilet, paper. for toilet paper. It's going to be swift crimes. Oh or some, one of my coworkers said that because he's running, well, they're running out of toilet paper, that it's time to split the two ply. And I'm like, fuck, <laughs> tough times, man. <laughs> No, no, you got to get the paper towel roll and cut it in half. Now you got two rolls of toilet Don't paper. Don't people ideas back. Or, or, or buy, buy three ply and you've got three times. The- <laughs> uh, no. But the thing is, like, there's no toilet paper anywhere, but there's kitchen roll. Like, the kitchen roll's fine. That's what she was just saying, the paper oh, towel. Oh, yeah, paper towel. Kitchen the roll. same oh, thing. Yeah. Ah. yeah. I don't like, know. I mean, has anyone ever a bidet? Yeah, shoot that's some what water Mike's all about. Get a bidet. I'm thinking about it, like... 50 bucks Canadian on eBay or on uh, actually Amazon. I have 
a picture on my phone because one of my coworkers was just in Costco, and they're all the bidet section of the hoses is still full. So, anyways, <laughs> all right, let's get in. Sorry, this Emily. <laughs> no, you're okay. So, um, so Kirtland, it's known as the the city of faith and beauty. And it's a Mecca to members of the Reorganized Church of Jesus Christ of the Latter-day Saints. Oh. Uh, A.K.A. Those guys. The Mormons. They're going to come yeah. up again. <laughs> well, it's, a, it's about cults. Yeah. So it's true. It's, it's a recurring thing. That's what I'm we, saying. We can't talk Sorry, about cults without talking about Mormons. <laughs> yeah. Religion or cult. Yeah. Can you tell me? Mm. Tell me what the difference is. <laughs> so the... The Reorganized Church of Jesus Christ of the Latter-day Saints view Kirtland as the birthplace of their faith. In early January of 1990, it was this quiet town that residents woke up and it was swarming with reporters and police officers. It had become the center of an explosive drama that was a mix of power, murder and religious fervor. The locals all looked on in horror as one by one, five bodies three of which were children, were removed from a barn on farmland, rented out by Geoffrey Lundgren. Geoffrey Lundgren was born on the 3rd of May, 1950, in Independence, Missouri. He was raised as a member of the RLDS Church. If you don't know, the RLDS Church is a religious group that had splintered from the far larger Utah-based Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Because they weren't crazy enough mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah that yeah that's kind of why yeah you're Just not orthodox super- enough we need more rules yeah they they didn't like certain things they were becoming more stringent left wing should i say oh left yeah. wing wow allowing well, no, women the well, no they're not they're not left wing by any stretch of the imagination <laughs> but they were becoming more left wing than they uh, letting okay. women letting women do stuff that they shouldn't be allowed to do. wear slacks good god <laughs> yeah so um both both groups they trace their roots back to joseph smith's inspirational experiences in palmyra new york oh in the 1820s yeah and both groups they they both claimed smith as their founder and prophet so Lundgren was the victim. Everyone likes a plate. Of, it's like you're 1990 <laughs> and you're taking shit from the 1820s. Like, yeah. who the fuck needs a calendar? It's cool. Whatever. It's fine. So um, Lundgren was the victim of an abusive upbringing, which was corroborated by several of his former neighbors. His dad, Don, was particularly domineering. And Lundgren was teased and harshly punished by his father. His mother, Lauren, was extremely cold towards her son, and Lundgren often felt as though he needed to fight for attention and affection. He spent much of his childhood attempting to please his parents, and quite often he felt isolated and inadequate. So children in in similar situations, they can quite often develop inferiority complexes, but the lack of emotion, the lack of emotional support seemingly instead led Lundgren to develop an abnormal, egotistical need to control others and his environment. Lundgren graduated from William Christman High School before attending Central Missouri State University. And it was while in university that Lundgren met Alice Keeler. Much like Lundgren, Alice was a member of the RLDS church and had suffered a difficult upbringing that was marred by poverty. Alice's father, Ralph, 
had suffered from depression, which was brought on after he contacted multiple sclerosis. So while Alice's father, obviously, he was unable to support the family, it was her mother, Donna, that would provide for the family working long hours as a chef in an all-night cafe. As a young girl. Yeah, this is when stuff happens is... When things go wrong with the family or your oh God, you know, yeah. your status changes, you lose lose your ability to make money or whatever, that's when things really start to go wrong. Oh, your yeah. livelihood, that's absolutely. Like combined with being a member of the RLDS church. <laughs> yeah. And the woman's bringing the money in, you know, it's all going to go <laughs> haywire. Yep. I mean, there's a lot of people, especially a lot of men, that just can't have a woman make more money than oh them. God, yeah. So, yeah, that <laughs> yeah. could be a problem. <laughs> Yeah, like the original are like the original church. They they don't like women being in the priesthood or anything like that. I don't think so. they just they don't like women. I think yeah, it's just they don't like women. Yeah, yeah I'll I'll speak more about that later because it's kind of like where they branch off because people are horrified at the thought of women being women able to do anything. Yeah. <laughs> just women. I'll just stand up there. We're the worst. Like the thought of women. <laughs> We're the worst. Yeah. <laughs> So um, as a young girl, Alice claimed that she was told by a leader at her RLDS church that she would marry a prophet of, quote, true greatness, end quote. So when Alice <laughs> met Lundgren, she believed that he was the prophet that the leader was referring to. And she literally became instantly smitten with him. Hmm. <laughs> I mean, so, but um, when you meet someone and you who fall matches in your love crazy. with them... Aren't you like you're the most amazing thing? Yeah. Oh, and yeah. if yeah. you also have exactly yeah, honeymoon face, totally. And if you also have this person in your past that said you're going to meet a prophet, you better then there it's you go. Just like, That's him. This must be. Oh, there's stars crossed for sure. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. Isn't mm-hmm. that your crazy matches my crazy from Deadpool? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I've only seen the first one and I don't remember. Both are such good movies. Alice had been taught, obviously she was a member of the RLDS church growing up, so she had been taught that a woman's role was to serve her husband. (laughs) So when the couple married in 1970, she became his obedient wife, satisfying his every whim. So Lundgren spent four years in the US Navy, and it was during this time that he and Alice had two sons, Damon and Jason, and then afterwards the family settled in San Diego, before moving back to Missouri when Lundgren was unable to find a job. So here in um, Missouri, they had two more children, Kristen and Caleb. It was in 1984 that the Lundgren family relocated to Kirtland, Ohio, where Lundgren went to work as a volunteer guide at the Kirtland Temple. A guide? Um, Like a Yeah, kind of like... It was a temple, so it's kind of like a historic temple, so he would do tours. Oh, literally <laughs> a guide. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. Like, it's just, just another... my name badge and my burgundy vest, and here's my whistle in case you get lost. <laughs> to, the, to the oh, left, I wish you they see had a this. Of that. <laughs> oh. Okay. Well, you know. So, um, if you don't know, the Kirtland Temple commemorates an 1836 temple that was built by Joseph Smith, who I mentioned earlier. The Lundgren family, they lived in a church-owned home, which was next door to the temple, and they all became active members and participants in the small red brick RLDS church, which was across the road from the temple. As part of the church's regular priesthood rotation, Lundgren began to preach 
And he also taught a Sunday school class on the Book of Mormon. Ooh. I saw the play. (laughs) (laughs) Amazing. So good. Is it good? Oh, my God. It's it's hysterical. But would Lundgren approve? No, God, no. No, that's why it's good. (laughs) Although, I will give the Mormon church a little bit of credit. Shut the front door. No, at, at every showing that was around the world, basically... In the program for that play, they would take out a uh, ad and say that they um, they liked what was uh, put into the play. But if you want to learn more, go Come here. Oh, <laughs> and it's a link to tickets smart. to the play. <laughs> no, no, it was a link back to their church because the play was true. It just doesn't paint it well. <laughs> yeah, you know. Oh, <laughs> a, a true story depiction of shit you don't like. Yeah. That's- <laughs> you know, I'll give them, as much as I'm not a big fan of the church, I'll give them a little credit because they actually did kind of play nice with the whole play that doesn't talk well about their church. Yeah, they weren't like, it's not offensive, you know, it's just like, but I mean, yeah, like, if people great. are talking about it, mm-hmm. you're going to be like, ooh, what's a Mormon? And then yeah. you're going to Google it, be like, yo, yeah, that's me. Yeah. And, then, and then you should, you should rethink Could your away. choices. Could, Could be. Um, yeah. But anyways. Mm-hmm. Sorry, go (laughs) sidetrack. So Lundgren, obviously, he had traditional views that it attracted a group of around 30 people. Those 30 people consisting of Lundgren, they felt as though since 1984, when the RLDS church officially approved the ordination of women. What? No. Oh, my God. Burn in hell. So since 1984, women could be adorned in the... RLDS church and obviously a lot of we fought hard for that men (laughs) traditional me as a three-year-old was (laughs) fighting the hard fight I wasn't born yet I wasn't born either so oh well screw you but like obviously a lot of people were horrified at the thought of this yes but Lundgren was very traditional in that sense that he thought women belonged pretty much at home in the kitchen giving Mm -hmm. birth so, um, are they giving birth in the kitchen? Well, See, that's yeah. that's what men never told us if we should do that or if we're allowed yeah. to like go I think to the hospitals. Cook the food and then if you have to give birth, go to the bedroom quickly and then get back in the kitchen, right? No, stay in yeah. the kitchen. The bedroom that's has funny. carpet. It's going to be easier to clean the kitchen floor. <laughs> For you. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, sometimes you have to think about yourself. <laughs> so before before this, the, the church pretty much taught women that women were subservient to men. So, a number of Lundgren's followers, Kevin Curry, Richard Brand, Greg Winship, Sharon Blunchke, Daniel Kraft, Debbie Oliveris, and others who were never publicly named, they were all invited to live in his home beside the temple. His other following, yeah, that's when it all goes wrong, and they all (laughs) move in together. Never. That is when it goes wrong. When When they all get together on one roof. His other followers included Ronald and Susan Luff, Dennis and Tanya Patrick and Cheryl and Dennis Avery. And it was these three couples that preferred to maintain their own residences. The members of Lundgren's flock considered themselves conservative, devout Christians who had all become disenchanted with the RLDS church. Initially, Lundgren appeared to be a devoted worker and teacher But in the ensuing years, his beliefs and attitudes became increasingly paranoid and aggressive. While Lundgren fitted into the basic traditions of the RLDS church faith, 
in the sense that he he described visions, spiritual experiences, and prophets, he mostly ignored the Bible's historical context. So Lundgren used a system of reading called chiasmus to make his own eccentric and dogmatic interpretations of Bible reading. So in, it was 1986, that Reverend Dale Luffman took over as the pastor of the church, and he soon started to receive complaints about Lundgren. The following year, officials of the RLDS church started proceedings to revoke Lundgren's priesthood license over concerns that he was preaching radical religious doctrines and also stealing from the church. Officials discovered that Lundgren had embezzled between $25,000 and $45,000 from temple donations and bookstore receipts. Oh, shit. First of all, that's, a lo- that's a lot during that time, though, right? Like, yeah. That's a crazy amount. Forty-five grand in the space of, t- what, two years? I'd take it as a, a side thing. If that's how much he's stealing, and, like, nobody's actually noticed in 1986. Yeah. How much are they making? It's not bad money, probably. <laughs> no. So anyway, his membership from the RLDS church was revoked and he was fired from his tour guide job <laughs> in order to move out of the church-owned home. And like, hand oh, in your over. whistle. Yeah. Over. <laughs> hand, hand over your lanyard. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, jeez, yeah. So um, he, 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 after he was, he was fired and kicked out of his house... He urged his followers to resign their church memberships and join him on a new journey. So, mm, so he rented out this large derelict farmhouse, which was around four miles away from the temple. And, not, um, sup- not suspicious. Yeah. No. No. <laughs> Just around the corner. But he couldn't afford the rent, so he, he offered <laughs> to repair it in lieu of rent. And then the following year, they moved into the farmhouse and they developed like a communal lifestyle. But um, it, it Lundgren, always goes wrong when the communal lifestyle happens. Yeah, as soon as <laughs> they become like a community, you're like, mm, no, that's going to go turn. That's just going to turn bad. Yeah. So obviously he closely supervised his followers and made them refer to him as dad. <laughs> oh, <laughs> daddy. Daddy. Not yeah. daddy. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> He's the first one. Uh, <laughs> probably not. <laughs> <laughs> so he insisted on driving them to and from work. Um, if they ever wanted Soccer to see daddy. anybody. <laughs> so he monitored their their phones, their calls, their phone calls, their mail, their visitors. And he after time he completely isolated them from their friends and their family. And he even forbid them from speaking to one another in private. That never happens. Oh my god! How does yeah. that, like, so no that kids. How do you even enforce that? How, how do you enforce that? Do you cut out their tongues? No, you have informants. Oh yeah. Yeah. Encourage yeah. them to rat each other out. That's so they all kind of. Yeah, they weren't allowed to go anywhere in private or speak in private. So, him. He also urged them to sell their homes and turn over all of their belongings and paychecks. Which seems to be Allegedly, a common common trend in a lot of cults. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, if you're making money, then you're independent. So that that's a big no no. Mm-hmm. So to keep his followers hanging on his every word, he started to claim that he had received guidance from God. 
Dog. So can, yeah, from God. <laughs> so apparently he could speak to God all of a sudden after moving into the barn or the farm. <laughs> they could, he could just, yeah. So they were all convinced that he was God's spokesperson and they granted him absolute spiritual and moral authority. Don't a lot so, of um, men think they're God's gift to everything? So. Oh, yeah. But <laughs> because of their penises. He was like, no, I, I speak to God every night. He's telling me. He's okay, telling me daddy, to- calm down. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, at the farmhouse, he would hold nightly sermons. But the nightly sermons were becoming progressively more paranoid and apocalyptic. His scriptural interpretations frequently changed, and he fed his group a mix of biblical and Mormon scriptures, all of which he had analyzed to suit his whims. So somewhere along the way, he had kind of started making up his own interpretations of the biblical and Mormon scriptures and kind of had a a mishmash of everything. By the late 1980s, he started amassing an arsenal, and it included numerous weapons, and more than 1,000 rounds of ammunition. Ooh, that sounds very American. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it was around this time that he told his followers that in order for them to see God, like he could see God, they had to seize the Kirtland Temple. Oh, of course. And so anybody who stood in their way, I mean, what? Okay. Bum, so, um, bum, bum. <laughs> yeah. So according to Lundgren, taking over the temple would cleanse the church and pave the way for the second coming of Christ. And when the second coming of Christ arrived, he would establish Zion. I mean, what? There, there, so in ta- I mean, when you look at South America, there's a lot of Jesuses. There's lots of Jesuses. So the second, third yeah. coming, fourth coming, hundredth coming has already happened. But there it's might be, news. there's only one Juan. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Oh my. Yeah. So, in anticipation of the attack, Lundgren's male followers started wearing camouflage and practicing with the weapons that they had accumulated. Sounds American again. Yeah, I mean, if the second coming of Christ, I mean, what? what, I don't understand the whole camouflage thing. You want to see Christ coming, don't you? Exactly, like they think they think Jesus Christ is coming again. How, so, how's Jesus going to find you if you're in camouflage? Yeah, right? I mean, you maybe can't it's see a test. There's no one here. Maybe it's a I'm test to see here. if it's the real Jesus because he should see you for your soul Ooh. and the power you're emitting, <laughs> not for your yeah, six slacks. <laughs> so deep. Cam- Jesus can't see camouflage. <laughs> no one can. <laughs> <laughs> He sees your soul. Yeah. I think what it so, is is we all just look at it and go, I don't want to see them. Yeah. <laughs> so it was around this time that they started wearing camouflage and practicing with weapons that they had accumulated that um, Kevin Curry and Char Olson became disillusioned with the cult and they left. But shortly thereafter, they were both replaced by Catherine and Larry Keith Johnson. I just genuinely hope it's like middle-aged men in the forest in camouflage with like nunchucks. <laughs> just like <laughs> fucking whipping them. America! <laughs> Fuck, Fuck yeah. yeah! We're the best in the country. My mom's a bald eagle. My dad's a Big Mac. What? <laughs> America! <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> uh, so in 1988, police had started to monitor Lundgren and his followers after they, re- after they received complaints of gunfire and paramilitary activity at the farmhouse. 
In addition, it was Kevin Curry that had contacted police and told them that Lundgren was planning on taking over the Kirtland Temple. Police in three separate states were made aware of the cult and their ominous activities, but they would later claim that they could find no reason to arrest them. So around a year passed and agents in Missouri, Ohio and West Virginia traded information about the cult, but they were they were unable to just they couldn't prove anything. They couldn't collect any evidence that they could use to build a case. Like as far as they knew, they were all just a bunch of weird hippies living in a farmhouse. Yeah, for sure. Like they weren't did. wrong. <laughs> no. <laughs> for the most part. So um, after this, Lundgren, he, he stepped away from the idea of seizing the temple. And instead, in a misbegotten reading of Mormon teachings, he told his followers that they had to perform a blood sacrifice Ooh. before heading west where they would be cleansed. And wait for this. They would be cleansed and then they would search for a golden sword. <laughs> and kind of a soft ring. sword. I don't know. Yeah. It's just turned very, very strange. Yes. So um, according to Lundgren, alongside this golden sword would be writings that contained the wisdom needed to convert the world Ooh. into his followers. He's, he's not happy with, well, how many did he have by this point? Eleven? He wanted the whole world to become his followers. That's a big jump. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you've gone from 11 weird, middle-aged, right-wing, anti, anti-women. anti <laughs> Guys with nunchucks. <laughs> Guys with nunchucks. Yeah, yeah, of course, yeah, yeah, yeah. And their camouflage. So you can't even see the them. whole world to follow him. So he declared that the scriptures showed that the worst sin in the world was to keep money for yourself. Oh. It wasn't being a woman. It was keeping money for yourself. So based, on, <laughs> so based on this, Lundgren told his followers that Dennis and Cheryl Avery were sinful. So by this point, pretty much all of his followers had pretty much given all of their money. Like some of them still had jobs, but not many. So they were forced to kind of give him all their money by this point. But the Averys were the only family that maintained some independence because they lived in their own home instead of the farmhouse and they kept some of their own money for themselves. But um, the, despite this, though, the Averys, they were devoted to Lundgren. They still continued to give him a portion of their income. And pretty much, they, they didn't live in the farmhouse, but they, they pretty much lived there. They spent all of their time there, them and their three children. And um, they pretty much gave all of their money to him, but they didn't give him all their money so that was obviously a massive sin in his eyes of course yeah horrified absolutely horrified for some reason lundgren also strongly disliked dennis and he hated the fact that cheryl was headstrong he claimed that their three children trina who was 15 years old becky who was 13 years old and karen who was seven years old were unruly he insisted that they were disloyal and lazy sinners and they would make a suitable blood sacrifice. I mean, okay. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I mean, if you're not living in his house and giving him all of your money, then you might as well get sacrificed. No, of course, yeah. I, I totally it's understand. He'd so corrupted his followers' devotion by this point that he convinced them that they had to participate in the murders if they wanted salvation from Armageddon. Which so, makes sense, yep. 
I mean, yeah, I don't know where the whole Armageddon thing came from. Something along the lines of the Golden Sword, Armageddon. It just sounds like you had a wet dream and came, woke up and was just like, oh, we're going to go find Honestly, a sword, we're going to dress in camo, nunchucks, and Armageddon. You you read about the whole, you're just kind of like, what? Because it kind of came out of nothing. Do you know what I mean? Like, there's a lot of cults. It kind of comes from something. Yeah. And it's, do you know what I mean? But, but like there's didn't... a catalyst that makes the yeah. switch. Yeah. But it just sounds like one bad idea led to another bad it's, idea. And then it's like the exactly. snowball effect of yeah. bullshit. It's, it's kind of the whole thing's just meh. Well, how many then, of our like most like popular movies these days are some kind of Armageddon movie? So yeah. it makes sense. It's just what we like in our media. Why not in their religions? Which I, guess I think most of them have that bullshit too. <laughs> yeah, I think the way he's one of them cult leaders that they don't actually believe what they're saying. They just are fucking crazy, <laughs> non PC. But anyway, so in preparation for Armageddon, Lundgren had his followers dig a grave in the barn that was on the grounds of his farmhouse. And then he told his followers, including the Avery family, that they were going to embark on a, a camping trip in search of the Golden Sword. So um, Lundgren ordered Alice and the three children to stay away. And then on the 17th of April, 1989, the Avery family were invited to the house, to the farmhouse for dinner. After dinner, the women of the cult were instructed to entertain Cheryl and the children while Ronald Luff, lured Dennis to the barn on the pretext that he needed help preparing for the camping trip. Lundgren and four of his male followers were lying in wait. As soon as Dennis entered the barn, he attempted, or Luff attempted to immobilize him with a stun gun. However, it malfunctioned and Dennis was wrestled to the ground and bound with duct tape. A chainsaw was turned on to muffle the sound of gunshots. Fuck. And then <laughs> Yeah. Okay, I'm surprised they didn't just use the fucking chainsaw at that yeah. point. <laughs> so he, he he put the chain or the chainsaw on and then shot him, shot him twice in the back, before shoving him into the grave. And then after the shooting, Lundgren's eldest son Damon, he was the only one out of all of them there that that seemed to really care. Like he showed remorse in the sense that he broke down crying. I mean his he was, what, 17? So his, his father was kind of embarrassed by the whole ordeal. He made him go outside and stand outside the barn to serve as a lookout. And then Cheryl was lured to the barn under the pretense that her husband needed help with the camping equipment. Once inside the barn, Cheryl was wrestled to the ground and bound with duct tape and then blindfolded. This is another... According to Lundgren, the scripture said that only the patriarch of the family needn't be blindfolded so that she could face her executioner. Cheryl was lowered into the pit and shot twice in the breast and then shot once in the abdomen. And Just then, to make it painful, he, Jesus. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't... I don't understand. Well, I don't really understand any of the whole motivations behind it, but um, he kind of, like, misread scriptures and obviously changed stuff around to fit... So he kind of... He made it his own. Um, yeah. Yeah, he, he kind of made it all his own. So obviously he kind of come up with this. Oh, well, that's what that's what the scriptures say. Like the matriarch has to, has to see who's killing her or something. So um, after she was shot and then shoved in the grave, 
Then in turn, by descending age, the Avery children were escorted to the barn under the pretense of being shown some horses. Seven-year-old Karen was the last to die. She'd been playing video games in the farmhouse, completely oblivious that her entire family was being slaughtered. Ron Luff gave Karen a piggyback from the farmhouse to the barn where she was shot dead. What a fucking monster. Yeah, what an asshole. Five, yeah, five people, three children, the youngest one of which was seven. They were all shot and killed, shoved into the grave that had been dug inside the barn on the farmhouse. And then the, the grave was filled with dirt and rocks. And quicklime was sprinkled on top in an attempt to speed up the decomposition process. After they'd killed them all, they decided they'd go on their camping trip. And like they said a prayer in the farmhouse. And Lundgren told all of his followers, pretty much, well done, guys. Amazing blood sacrifice. But then he said, you've got to get used to it because we're going to do more. He pretty much said God was calling for more blood sacrifices. And there we go. So um, they went off on their camping trip. But like when they got to their camping trip, they, they kind of went to like a mountainous area near Davis, West Virginia. And they camped out in tents until October. But it was kind of around this time that things got even weirder. So he told Lundgren told his followers that the scriptures said that he could take more than one wife <laughs> and that polygamy was God's will. Oh. So <laughs> you can't have a cult without polygamy. Mm. So it's hard, yeah, for sure. Or this fun. Apparently, yeah. So this apparently granted Lundgren permission to take Tonya Patrick as his wife. But this arrangement didn't work, and he, he kind of gave her back to her husband, and then he tried someone else. This didn't work. <laughs> he wasn't having it. So he gave her back to his wife, and then he went through this stage of making women in the cult, like, strip for him in the woods. Oh, jeez. <laughs> Threatening that he would kill their children if they didn't comply. But, like, obviously, this is kind of... Apparently, murdering a family, including three, three children, was all right. But like this was this was a this was a step too far. So apparently, a lot of them disbanded. They left the cult because they thought this was a bit weird. I mean, murdering that, that was weird. Stripping, yeah, that was weird. Like murdering seven-year-old. That, that was that was all right. But stripping stripping around the woods, nah. So they kind of they 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 disbanded in late October, and the Lundgren family moved to California, and the rest moved to Missouri. And then it wasn't until January of 1990 that the the bodies of the Avery family were found. The police had been tipped off by Larry Johnson. And Larry Johnson was one of the cult cult members. He participated in the murder and he moved up to the camping trip with them. And it was Lundgren had stole his wife and um, he wasn't happy. (laughs) So he, he tipped the police off. But like Lundgren had given his wife back because, you know, it didn't work out. So, I don't even understand so, how that works. Like, yeah, it's like a loner wife. Wife swap. If Lundgren didn't try and steal everyone's wife, would they have ever been caught? Because the bodies—it was like a, a derelict barn in, on the farmhouse. Like the farmhouse was derelict too. Like if you look up photos of it, it was a shithole, pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry to say, but it no. was. They—I mean—they said they would do it up in lieu of rent. So, like, how shit is it that someone would agree to that? But, um, <laughs> so Lundgren, Alice, and Damon. Damon was the oldest son. They were arrested the following week. So, they were arrested while the other children, Kristen, who was 10, Caleb, who was 9, and Jason, who were 15, were taken into custody. 
So they went to trial, all three went to trial. Lundgren obviously was unrepentant and resolute in his convictions, professing that he was a prophet and only doing what God had told him to do. He was found guilty on five counts of aggravated murder and kidnapping and was sentenced to death. Damon, who was the, the oldest son, he pleaded not guilty. During his testimony, he sobbed intermittently and he said he didn't know about the murder plot until the day that it took place. Oh, but yeah. um, but that doesn't change anything if you participate. It's like, well, I didn't know it was happening, yeah. but then it started happening. So I was already there. Like what? Yeah. So like his lawyer, he obviously tried to get leniency saying that like he was he was bought up in a cult. So obviously he was a bit. Mm, but, um, <laughs> That's the technical term. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But, like, uh, no, they, they were having none of it. He Obviously, like, Damon was brought up a Ben, his father, because he, he obviously was brought up in a cult, and he didn't know any different, and he thought his dad was, like, the second coming of Christ. But um, they didn't take any leniency on him. He was found guilty on four counts of aggravated murder and kidnapping, and he was sentenced to 120 years to life. Same, same for Alice. She, she pleaded not guilty. And she said, like, she didn't know anything about it. She didn't participate. But um, all of the other cult members had turned against them by this point and testified against them. And they pretty much said Alice knew what was going on. She was she was part of it as well. She was just as willing and active as her husband. So she was found guilty on five counts of aggravated murder and kidnapping and sentenced to 150 years to life. I love that. Um, 150 years to life. There's no fucking way that an adult is going to live to 150 years past when they've been sentenced. It's just like I know, but I just make yeah. the sentence forever. Yeah, like one thing they do like a million year sentence. But or I something think stupid. the reason I understand it is because it's justice for each victim, right? Oh, so yeah, if it's yeah. per victim, you get yeah. whatever 30 years. I, yeah, I get just, it, yeah. right? I, I do too, but it's just funny because you hear 150 years and you know this person's in their, you know, 40s, their 40s. Even even if they're in their 20s, they're there's no fucking die. way they're getting yeah. out of life. Like, I understand, like, it's each victim's taken into account, and obviously, so they all get justice, as you said. But, like, I don't understand the adding the bit to life. I mean, it is life. It's like a feel good thing. Yeah, just say 150 years. Or or change it around and it's life to 150 150, years. Yeah, that would make more sense. I don't understand. I've never understood this. Like, I understand, like, the year. Like, they have to take into account each victim, each crime. So, like, the kidnapping charge will come with X amount of years. The murder charge will come with X amount of years. So, yeah, add them all up and there you go. But I don't understand the two life. I've never understood that. I don't know. So they were obviously all, they're all going to die behind bars unless Christ knows what happens. But, um, so. <laughs> well, Christ was- does know, doesn't he? <laughs> That's, that's plot twist. A fast thing to say. <laughs> so the two of the other men who participated in the murders, which were Daniel Kraft and Ronald Luff, they were guilt. They were found guilty on five counts of aggravated murder and three counts of kidnapping, and they were just sentenced to life imprisonment. And then the remainder of the followers, they received a range of sentences for complicity in the murders. So Sharon, Catherine, Susan, Deborah, Gregory, and Richard, they all received leniency because they testified against everyone else. And that's where the whole story comes from, if you know what I mean. Like, obviously, nobody knows what happened in that barn except for the people that were there. And they testified. So they have all since been paroled. What? 
shut yeah. the front door. So this two yeah. life is not two life. Yeah, no. So they've all, yeah, they've all been paroled. They they were all active members in it. They agreed to do it. Some of them helped dig the grave. Some of them bought kids in one by one. Fuck. And they've all been released. So Dennis and Tonya Patrick, they were placed on one year probation for obstruction of justice. So that's pretty much it. The Cartland cult killings, it remains the worst mass murders in the history of Lake County. Wow. Um, yeah, it overwhelmed. Like, I don't really, I've never been, obviously, but I know it's like a tiny, quaint community. And the crimes overwhelmed the city's town's police department. At the time, it consisted of just five officers and a chief. So even though Lundgren was no longer affiliated with the RLDS church, in the aftermath, the, the reputation was seriously tarnished by the cult. So obviously people still associated him with the church. That was an essay. Yeah. <laughs> that, was, that was longer than I thought. No, 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 no. No, 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 no. That's awesome. Yeah. I didn't know anything about that cult, really, actually, so that's great. Exactly. That's why I loved researching it for my book, because I was like, what? I've never heard of this. Yeah. But, like, it's not a typical cult in the sense that, like, you think of Jonestown, Heaven's Gate. They're all big, big cults. Yeah. But, like, this one just killed five people and then went camping. <laughs> but really, if there was, what did kind you of- say, like, 11 of them, that's 50% almost. Yeah. Well, I mean, come, when it comes down to it, camping is my favorite thing to do in the summer, so and I understand, it. totally. <laughs> I'm going to kill a group of people, and then I'll go camping and look for the golden sword. Yeah, I, I'd love That's a golden a sword, too. Monster. I don't even know. Yeah, I know, it, yeah. it's messed up. But I just think it yeah. speaks more to the person's vulnerability in that, right? Like, you're just obviously heartless if you can do that. Yeah. And then you're like, okay, now we just like continue on. I think yeah. whether it was going camping or going doing whatever after that senseless act but it was more so just like okay well that's what we had to do because of the jesus christ and offerings and now it's sunday and we all go to to church right like it just it just yeah is what it is we came here to camp why would we not camp right like Mm -hmm. i don't know that they were so not touched or it didn't affect them you know like they 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 camped for quite a while like i think it was like two months yeah it wasn't like a long weekend Mm mm-hmm but it was uh, the the whole weird thing about it is like nobody thought when we're planning to kill this family because they won't give all their money to the the cult leader. I mean, it was after that that when he started trying to take different wives and making them strip in the forest, they were like, "Nah, this is weird." Yeah, and they all left. Yeah, like how is that the weird part? Yeah, exactly. That that's why it doesn't make any sense. It's like mm-hmm. God has told us we need to kill these these kids these three kids and their mom and dad mm-hmm. and that, that's normal that's what god wants but as soon as what next month when we go camping and he's trying to make us strip for him and he's trying to take different wives now nah, that's fucking weird i'm leaving yeah yeah i mean i would how, love to how camp is that your months. deal breaker yeah how is that like how warped is your worldview mm-hmm. like what has he done that that's but i think maybe like because he'd been preaching that for so long like this is what we're doing, this is what we're doing, this is what we're doing, and then when it changes completely and it's something that affects you, as in it affects you, you're the one being forced to strip for him, you're the one. Yeah. It's your wife. It has to be his yeah. wife. Yeah. That's when you're like, nah, fuck that. Like it's it. their kids, it's not my wife or yeah. my exactly. husband or whatever. Yeah. But It's yeah. like when it affects them, they're like, mm, nah, let's leave. <laughs> yeah. 
Rain check on the striptease. <laughs> I'm getting the fuck I out of here. I don't want that golden sword that much. No. Yeah. I'm just going to go back. It's September, okay? It's cold. I don't want to be out here. Yeah. GTFO. Get yeah. The fuck out. yeah, I think that probably had a lot to do with it too. It's kind of funny that they all disappeared to California today. I'm cold. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm cold now. I'm going home. It was definitely cold here today. It was like, the hell's the temperature right now? It's not warm here. Oh my god, it's actually warm here today for once. By warm, I mean seven degrees. It's seven degrees here right now. <laughs> That's warm. <laughs> That's warm it was, yeah, it's been a super gorgeous day today. It's been bizarre because it actually, we had recently had like 15 Celsius and stuff, and then it's dropped back down to like two or three. and <laughs> Tropical, 15 degrees in Belfast. Mm, that, well, people will be wearing their shorts and t-shirts. Midsummer? Yeah. Well, we were we were definitely, yeah, definitely. wearing our t-shirt and shorts when it was 15. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, I'll get the next beer and I'll get ready to start my story. My case is going to go back in time a little bit here. It's on Brother 12. So that's mm-hmm. XII. You know, Roman numerals. So I've never heard of this one. Oh, nice. Yeah. So, I'm excited. My beer pairing for this is Collective Arts out of Ontario. They have the IPA number 12. So it's uh, got Nelson Savon Hops and Mosaic. So these are both coming from, um, if I remember right, and I could be wrong, but I think Nelson Savon and Mosaic are for the most part coming from either New Zealand or um, Australia. Now, you can definitely uh, tell me I'm wrong, but I think they're coming from that side of the earth. So I'm clueless. They're, they're tasty hops. The can is also really, really adorable. It has like an octopus that's sticking out of it, mm-hmm. but its little tentacles are actually what look like Lego pieces because yeah. they're very square. Or almost like 8-bit like video game. Yeah. It's cute. Like if, if, if a purple octopus could doggy paddle, that's what it looks like. <laughs> He's very happy about it. Or she. I don't know. This beer is super, super hazy orange. It looks like orange juice with a white like fluffy head on top. Smells kind of like uh, fruit juice with some floral notes going on. It, it tastes like fruit juice, tropical and orange juice. It tastes like spoiled pineapple juice. Oh, mm. I don't know about spoiled. Fermented. Fermented, Fermented. sure. Yeah, but definitely <laughs> pineapple and orange juice. It's got like almost no bitterness. Almost, it's basically just fruit juice with alcohol. That sounds good. <laughs> it's. It is sound- good. <laughs> and it's uh, six point nine percent alcohol. I don't hate it, to be ah, honest. I don't sweet. hate it. So you might not either, Emily. It's a rave review. <laughs> yeah, if, it's, if it's light and it doesn't taste like... Well, I can drink it. I don't know that I'd go, once again, out of my way to buy it, but I, I prefer this one over the cherry one. It definitely tastes lighter than it is alcohol-wise. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this nice. does not yeah, taste yeah, like, like 6.9 or whatever you said. Yeah. I wish we had more of the cherry one. Really? It's delicious. I could have had that two cans by myself. I don't know what this is mixing very nice with my premium craft lager from Hell's Gate. <laughs> my 5%, so. Yeah. All right. Edward Arthur Wilson was born on July 25th, 1878. Three names. It's 
a bad start. Yeah, and is. like three dates that you said, it's a great start. <laughs> Everyone knows what having three names means. Yes. That you, your parents didn't oh, yeah, love you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They're you, into trouble. He was born in Birmingham, England to parents Thomas Wilson and Sarah Ellen Persall. His father worked in manufacturing and seemed to be quite successful. Family were members of the Catholic Apostolic uh, Church, a weird off-splinter group of the Catholic Church that likes to speak in tongues and the likes. Oh my god! Yeah, like, like tongues. Yeah, like that weird, like that weird stuff. Yeah, yeah, perfect. <laughs> that nailed it. Yes, yeah. like when uh, what is it? When the priest parcel is like tongue, yeah. somebody with like a broken leg, and then all of a sudden they have a fine leg. Yeah, yeah, like yeah. Jim Jones, which don't, we'll get into yeah, later. Yeah, yeah don't yeah. go to the hospital. I'm going to shove you in the forehead. Everything's fine now. Well, there was a recent priest. Throw water on you. Yeah, there, there was a priest in the states that just like prayed the COVID nineteen away. So oh my yeah. God, I saw um, <laughs> also, something it's, it's on that. It's going to ruin his reputation. I saw a thing with like with all the COVID stuff no, that's won't. going on. How all the anti vaxxers are pretty quiet right now. It's mm-hmm. like yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. That's why. Yeah. Just you know, use yeah. essential oils. And it'll be fine. Yeah. I don't think that's going to work this time. No. I don't think so either. But, you know, you smell really it's fucking good. It's kind of funny, though. They're like, oh, I'm not going to vaccinate my kids. And then it's like, you're not going to see, you're not going to take them to see their granny then? No. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, well, there you go. Exactly. Well, but it's okay because their kids have toilet paper. So <laughs> they can just wrap grandma and oma, you know, oma into toilet paper and grab their kid in toilet paper and then they can have like a little mummy off. It's fine. We got this. Yeah, yeah, that that won't permanently scar a child. No, of course not. I've wrapped this uh, person That's who wants normal. a hug in toilet paper. Clearly looks like a mummy. You just need to show them Backstreet Boys video when Nick Carter is oh, wrapped in a mummy and he looks fine as hell and everyone's in, into it. No. Yikes. Just saying, I would bang a mummy if it was a Carter. <laughs> Anyways, continue. Is he, is he not a, a daddy? <laughs> yeah, Nick Carter was the not a daddy da- then. No, that's Jeffrey Longwood. <laughs> I'm throwing up in myself a little bit right now. Yeah. So we'll continue the story. All right. I cannot find a ton of info on Edward's young life, but when he was a teenager, he did end up apprenticing on a Royal Navy ship. He would serve around the world and would even become a captain before he was out of the Navy. While spending time in New Zealand in 1902, he would meet and then marry uh, Marjorie Clark. Once married, they would have two children. They would then pack up their life and get back on the ocean and make their way to British Columbia, Canada in 1907. They would then end up settling in Victoria, B.C. on Vancouver Island. So back in 1907, Victoria would have a population between 20,816 and 31,660, as that was the sense number between 1901 and 1911. Uh, There is no number for 1907. For people that care, the population of Victoria City proper now, the capital of BC, only has a population of 85,796 as of 2016. But that is just the city, not the greater city, including all of the um, outskirts that are out there now. The GVA. Whatever you call it. Oh, Grand Theft Auto? I play that. <laughs> greater Victoria. <laughs> I, I mean, oh, sorry. <laughs> I think the greater Victoria uh, no, area I just now made has, um, it's got a couple hundred thousand people in the greater Victoria area, but for just the city, it's 85,000. 
So unfortunately for his wife, Marjorie, Edward would pack up and leave his family and hit the high seas again in 1912. He would make his way back to England, and at one point it was likely to see his parents, as it sounds like they had lots of money and were retired. So why not uh, kind of milk that money, right? Yeah. And this is way before money transfers and the internet. You just got to go and visit them for the money. Yeah, fuck, right? FaceTime with family? Gross. (laughs) He was already a very religious guy, but between 1912 and 1924, things would ramp up and he would begin to get into studying all religions as well as the occult. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> he would also uh, begin to believe in karma and reincarnation. <laughs> but while in France, in a small village in 1924, he would end up getting a series of visions. <laughs> it was these visions that he said that he was talking to one of the masters of wisdom. As you the, do. Yeah, exactly, as you do. <laughs> these were a group of deities that were known as the Great White Brotherhood. <laughs> by oh. many new age groups. Yeah. Just I'm sounds just fucking really douchey. Modern. <laughs> I bet you they were looking for fucking golden swords. <laughs> or playing with each other. Or white people. Ew. Hey, you made it weird. No, you did. Uh-uh, you and... Inst- Anyways. It would be one of these brothers that would make him a disciple, and that just happened to be the 12th brother. So this is when Edward would change his name to Brother Twelve. During this time in France, he was able to find a bunch of followers for his new teachings, and these people would include many wealthy and prominent people in society. He would write a book, The Tree Truths, as well as a manifesto, a message for the masters of the wisdom. (laughs) These would tell the philosophy of universal brotherhood and would also get into his doomsday prophecies for the current social and political systems. So, you know, still kind of on point. <laughs> He's not wrong. It's just like a politically correct kind of thing. Yeah. It's just very... This, this happened in the, what, the early 19... 1920s so far. It's very modern. <laughs> a little bit in a way, yeah. Ahead, ahead of his time. As soon as he said he wrote a manifesto, I'm like, yeah, this guy's old as shit. Like, yeah. <laughs> It's like, I mean, last thing I wrote was an Instagram caption, so. <laughs> yeah. It's the same thing. People it, just have a shorter attention span now. Shorter manifesto now. Yeah. <laughs> I literally use emojis for it, so yes. Yeah. <laughs> this is my manifesto. Emoji, emoji, emoji. Yeah. yeah. 1,500 Happy face. emojis. Exploding head face. Poop emoji. Poo emoji. Poo emoji is my go-to. Yeah, I think my whole manifesto right now is poo emojis. <laughs> yeah. And then a question mark, because you don't know where the toilet paper is. <laughs> Then a question of a kitten. Yeah. In 1926, with his new religious views and his followers, he would move back to England. Here he would collect even more people. 1927 would see Brother Twelve move his entire flock far from their family and friends as they headed back to Vancouver, Canada. I mean, you're getting the same weather, right? You're going to need the same clothes. Yeah. an easy transition. I mean... You've, you've got to move a long distance to get away. Yeah. yeah. Like, how long, how would you get from England to Vancouver? Obviously, boat. boat. Yeah, it would be sailing ship. How long yeah. would that be? It'd be Back a couple day. months kind of thing, yeah. It's not short. I'll Google. Dedicated? Give them that. You're going to Google dedicated. the boat schedule for 1920s England. <laughs> Very dedicated. Three months. 
I'd have to think that the 1920s wouldn't be that much different than a lot of other times in history. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Put the sales up and see what happens. <laughs> I think we were beyond sales in the 1920s. Uh, yeah, but... there was a lot of talk of sailing ships still in this story. So okay, <laughs> who knows? I mean, you did the research, not me. So I'm just going to listen. So going back into the Wayback Machine for Vancouver, the population in 1921 would be uh, 117,217 people. So to go back to our last census that I could find in 2016, that is a population now in the city of Vancouver of 631,486. And that's just the city itself. But that's still a big uh, jump of population. Where are we sailing from again? England. Okay, Mm -hmm. so UK to Canada, typically 10 to 30 days, depending on the port of arrival right now. So back then, let's let's just double it because inflation or deflation because it's in the past. Well, let's just say 30 days because you're not going to like Ontario. You have to come through the Panama Canal still at that time. It sounds it's gotta like. Take, like no, day. you don't have to go all the way down the Panama Canal at that time. You wouldn't be going through the, the ocean. Was still the ocean back then. The you Panama can't. Canal was more for import into the United States. How do you get from Ontario or whatever over? You no, she's saying you wouldn't have to go down to. Ontario. Otherwise, you have to go the opposite way through the um, under the Asia. Africas and. <laughs> Anyways, I'm sure there's more than one. Not that I'm a specialist or anything in this. But it is a long time. I mean, as long as you don't go too far in one direction and fall off the end, right? I mean, right, because the earth is I mean, flat. The Eng- England didn't think this was India, so who knows? Right. They would not hang out in Vancouver long, though, as they headed across the Strait of Georgia to Vancouver Island. Which is better anyway. <laughs> no, it's not. Yes, it is. This time, though, they would not land in Victoria, but further up the island in the village of Nanaimo. Which is no. now a city, but Virgin Nanaimo. This is where the cult of the Aquarian Foundation would be founded. He was just as charismatic in Canada as he was able to find the rich and powerful from all over North America to draw to his cult. I'm still amazed that this is not ringing any bells for me. I don't know. Was there a theme song, Aqua by Barbie Girl? Or Barbie Girl by Aqua? <laughs> The part that I can't get over I'm is the stop fact that for a little bit. <laughs> this is a this is a guy from England mm-hmm. that doesn't have the internet, doesn't have any of that stuff, and he was able to find people all over Europe, all over North America, yeah, yeah, to yeah. buy Yo. into his cult. Like what the fuck? Yeah, and carrier pigeons. <laughs> yeah, and then that guy in our last case was decades ahead of him. Eleven people. <laughs> Yeah, cute. Exactly. Good effort. Real cute. Carrier pigeons, I tell you. Yeah. Cult pigeons. He would spread his writings that I mentioned earlier as far and wide as he could, and they asked people to donate money to the cause so that he could build their foundation's headquarters, Cedar by the Sea in Nanaimo, which is still actually a place. It's not owned by him anymore, but still a place. Do they ever not ask for <laughs> donations? No. 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 Okay. They would purchase between 126 and 200 acres of land near Cedar. So expensive. Yeah. Well, not then, but still, it's still a lot of money. They spent $36. With donations coming in from all over, 8,000 supporters and one very large donation came in at $25,000 from Mary Connolly, a wealthy American. So more land was purchased for the cult. Wow. It's like, this guy already had 8,000 people. Now, all, not all of them were at the cult's um, location. Yeah, headquarters. But headquarters. still, he had 8,000 people donating money from all That's over the fucking crazy. world. Oh, wow. 
This guy's got something going on. Yeah. Charisma. Yes. Sick penmanship. Yeah. To give it some, <laughs> <laughs> to give it some perspective, according to an inflation calculator, that would be $371,663 today. Oh, my God. Just from that one donation, the $25,000 donation. Wow. And he had 8,000 people donating. This money went to purchase land on both Valdez and DeCourcy Island, just off the coast of Nanaimo, which is what we call the Gulf Islands, right. which stretches from um, Nanaimo area all the way down into Washington State. I'm so bad with Canada geography. Like, where is this in terms it's of in anywhere between, I would know? It's in between uh, the mainland and Vancouver Island, and it goes all okay. the way from, like, sort of mid-island all the way down into Washington State. Okay. They, yeah. For the most part, they hug Vancouver Island, though. Okay, I know where that is. Yeah. The property in DeCourcy Island was upwards of 105 acres. So, like, wow. nothing is small here. Like, they're, they're huge. That's what he said. <laughs> <laughs> Brother 12 would end up moving the cult to these uh, two islands. They, they would keep their cedar uh, location, but they would move most of the uh, work to the two islands. Yeah, when you, you get prices like that for real estate in British Columbia, you yeah. hold on to it. Yeah, nowadays you, you can't even buy a house in the city of Vancouver less than a million dollars. So, yeah, hold on. Yeah. His goal, after all, was to build a self-sufficient community that would have no need for connections to the outside world. I mean, that sounds good to me, actually. Yeah, it's like, that's not the worst. Oh, we're uh, right now. Do we have well. indoor plumbing, really? Yeah. And yeah. in-suite. I don't know yet. Because then I'm in. Is there social distancing that's yeah. happening? <laughs> they were, like, literally trying to set up social distancing. <laughs> that sounds good to me. Not for the past 15 years, I'm yeah. sure. <laughs> this sounds like my ideal retirement, actually. Okay, I don't know. Yeah. Grow my own food. Don't have to talk to people. Don't have to put with other people's shit. That sounds good. I want someone to feed me grapes when I retire. So we're <laughs> a cabana boy. Well, doesn't yeah? I don't married, discriminate. So. Just just anyone to feed me doesn't yeah, matter. As long as they're pretty. You could train a monkey. Doesn't have to be pretty. Train a monkey. <laughs> Yo, if you give me a motherfucking monkey, I will train a monkey to do half of my shit. I'll name him Bubbles like MJ. Like, it's fine. <laughs> I'll call him Bubbles Jr. Because I don't want to, you know, disrespect. Anyways. Yeah. Now, of course, he was not happy to just set up a cult in British Columbia. Duh. He decided he wanted to get in on the action for the 1928 American election. So he started up a third party and would even get support uh, at first from Democratic Senator James Thomas Heflin of Alabama. Don't know who that is. Well, you should be in the 20s. In the end, the senator would actually support uh, Herbert Hoover. I know who that is. Yeah, it's the vacuum company. Yeah. Yeah. He actually started it back in the day. (laughs) Mm -hmm. He had even predicted... Right before Mr. Dyson. Of course, yeah. (laughs) He had even predicted that that election would end in a violent civil war. So I don't think he was right, but um, I could see that happening today. (laughs) But after his failed political play, he was back at it full time. Well, many cults at this time had prophecies of the devil coming and witchcraft being a worldwide issue. Yeah. Brother 12 would think these cults were actually out to get him. What, fear-mongering to gather more um, people? That never happens. (laughs) That's crazy. But fear not. He would use all the might he thought he had to fight off these perceived threats and attacks. He would convince Myrtle Baumgartner that she was a reincarnation of two Egyptian gods, both Osiris and Isis. 
Of ISIS. course. Yeah, not the same ISIS. <laughs> <laughs> the original. It's one yeah, The original. Myrtle's, before the reboot. Myrtle's a name you don't really get anymore. I didn't like that reboot. No, I didn't like the reboot either. Baby Myrtle. Here she is. You don't get that a lot. It's like Barbara. You see, oh, look at baby Barbara. Like, do you just become a Barbara? <laughs> well, I know people named Barbara. Do you know a single infant in the last five years has been named Barbara? No. Right. Because you become you know a Barbara. Barbara under the age of 60. Oh, okay. So it's like, <laughs> now you're 70. We're changing your name to Barbara. <laughs> to Barbara. Do you know what I mean? Like, oh, now you're an old hag. Barbara. Mm-hmm. Bitch. Anyways. <laughs> My friend is not a bitch. Okay. Okay, so you have the one Barbara right. that stands out of the rest. Good. Right. And Good, Barbara I'm glad. Streisand. Barbara that's not 60 plus. Exactly. Barbara Streisand is dope, though. <laughs> of course, he would tell her that they were going to give birth to the 20s Horus, and this child would be the world's savior. Okay, wait. Horus is the baby of Myrtle. Uh, that's amazing. We're also, the they're not even trying to fit in. I love it. Also, Horus... You also are never named Horus. You end up a Horus. Yeah. I mean, I, I would like to say it's nice that it wasn't either Jesus or Brother 12. It was someone else that was going to be the savior. Yeah. I mean, it's a nice little twist. Kind of name you'd expect with a with a, a story about someone that moved from England to, to Canada to start a cult. Yeah. Horus and... And they're neither, it's not a particularly British name or a Canadian name. No, it's straight up. It's it, just like he, Egyptian. He's just, he's just like, nah, fuck, fuck both of them. I'm just don't, going Don't forget that now. Europe was, or England especially, was great at stealing stuff from Egypt. <laughs> I'm just relieved it's not something. <laughs> Britain's great at stealing stuff from everyone. Nonsense. Like no. Apple or. <laughs> from the north of Ireland. Names. Chicago. North America. <laughs> <laughs> Nina and I are having a different discussion than Mike and Emily are. <laughs> it happens. Okay. <laughs> we're talking about Brits stealing countries. Yeah. yeah, we're talking about super baby names like Apple and <laughs> Chicago. Yeah. <laughs> it's okay. You want your child to be a stripper. It's fine. I mean, <laughs> in their crib, there's just a little pole in the center. I haven't seen my Start cousin. Him young. I haven't seen my cousin in years. No, no offense to her, but her name is Autumn. So. My yeah, because the, t- the season bad. hasn't come I yet. I feel bad saying this, but my sister has. I hope she doesn't listen to this. But um, my she probably will. Hi, honey. But so. um, my sister has kids called Eli. Wait, Eli's fine. Eli's, Eli's, Eli's good. Yeah. yeah, fine. Ezra and Casper, like the friendly, the friendly ghost. ghost? Yes, that's what I said. It's not as bad as what Mike. What I said. I said first the, the friendly ghost. Or the mattress, but like she told me first of all, like his name. That's like such a podcast gonna, reference. She was, gonna, she was gonna spell it beginning with K, and she told me it was Keith. Oh, it's like a K- and, like, Kardashian ever since baby. Born, I've called him roast beef Keith. <laughs> oh yes. And now he's kind of getting. He's one, so she's like, "You need to stop calling him roast beef Keith." Casper, <laughs> like. Okay. I love that. I don't know where. Yeah. Short I'm, form beefcake. beefcake. You're welcome. Fucking Casper. I, I don't think it's much better than my name. I've been on a construction site before where there was five of us standing around a hole in the ground. Someone yelled Mike, and all five of us turned. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah, like even when we're in our chat on the podcast yeah. chat, there's like there's you, there's invisible choir. Is there someone else? Is the guy the Florida 
they all moved to Florida called Mike. I, someone else not is too many mics Mike on there, but still, yeah. <laughs> you just got to call someone by their podcast. Yeah. <laughs> That's your name now. Your name is Brew Crime. Yeah. I'm sorry. Not Mike is gone. <laughs> No, Mike has died, okay? <laughs> Mike has died. Brew crime, all three of you. You're called brew crime. You're a collective brew crime. Ah, We're the motherfucking musketeers, <laughs> bros. How many people named Beck do you know, though? Or Nina, hey. Yeah. I don't know anyone called Nina. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> it's Nina Beck. slash featuring the brew crime. I don't think Just I know kidding. anyone called Beck. I know someone called Rebecca. Yeah. But, like, my name is the most common name, literally... In all of it's Ireland. always like the first most popular name mm. every single year. Oh, yeah. so you've got the name Mike, basically. You're the Mike, the Mike of Ireland. Ireland. There you go. Female I'm Mike of call, Ireland. Just called Morbidology. <laughs> <laughs> it really it, rolls that. off the tongue easier. Yeah, right. yeah Morbidology so easy to say. <laughs> Myrtle sadly uh, would have a number of miscarriages and then have a serious oh. mental health breakdown. That's horrible. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, you're going to have to go here. We're not going to have any side commentary on that. This relationship would lead to Brother 12 banning relationships between couples. Um, Brother 12 was setting up a system where he would be the only person that was allowed to have relationships oh, that's with convenient. women in the cult. Oh, that makes sense. Real convenient. Yeah. But this whole time, the numbers of the cult was increasing. You know, it's just like, it's bringing more people in, which is good for him. More money. Yeah. And women. <laughs> Now, of course, at the time, Brother 12 was also hoarding donations for himself at the time. What? 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 A member of the Aquarium Foundation would be enraged and would have embezzlement charges laid against Brother 12. Unfortunately, this charge would be dropped as Mary Connolly, the large donor, would show up at the trial and say that her massive donation was gifted directly to Brother 12. So they really couldn't prove the fact that all this money was being embezzled somewhere else. I see. Rifts were opening up in the group in 1928, but the cult still had many loyal members from the colony and from all over the world. It was so amazing that this pre-internet days, he was able to pull this off because like, how the fuck are you I don't sucking know. people in in your 20s? <laughs> like mass telegram. I don't Yo, know what are the works. things called in the blimps? Blimps. Yes. <laughs> Goodyear. Before it was called Goodyear. Yeah. Like, it was called Bad Year. You know, year it was a decent year. And yeah. you should join this cult. 2020 is a bad year. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Every single member of the cult was paying monthly membership fees. After all, if you were to move to the colony, you'd be required to hand over every worldly possession to Brother 12. How much was this? Do we know how much no, the membership fee was? Okay. But I mean, if you moved to the colony, you had to give everything to him. So mm-hmm. everything. The people had to sell like, their worldly possessions. Yeah. yeah. And I know there was a um, stipend, for lack of a better term, yeah. for people who moved to the colonies, as in Canada. Uh, they received from England to yeah. move there. It's probably and a little it, late for that, though. Yeah, I'm not sure what years those were, though. That's what I was going to say. So every member of the cult was kept busy working on their farm on DeCourcy Island or tending to the ships they owned or other jobs on one of the two islands. Things were getting worse for the 12, though, and it seems he was losing his sanity and many members of the cult would bring him back to court. 
He would be arrested in regards to the set of lawsuits, but would get out. But from the hundreds of people that had lived at the Foundation Settlement, it would drop to only two dozen people. The Outside community and the government of British Columbia were also getting worried about this group and were beginning to get involved themselves. In early 1929, we would see the society get a new tugboat named Quentin. Let's go with that. That's catchy. K-U-E-N-A-T-E-N. Some of the women who were strong-willed and influential in the cult worship by the Twelve still, and the men, likely former partners, were not happy with this. Why does this sound familiar? <laughs> exactly. Mm-hmm. Like every fucking cult. <laughs> Women, no. Men, <laughs> Around this time, British Columbia would strip the Cedar Farms location near Nanaimo from Brother 12, and then the land that was stripped away would be given to some of the former cult members that lived there still. When the province stripped the farm from the cult, there were all kinds of rumors flying, with some talking of members disappearing. It was assumed that these members had met terrible fates by the hands of Brother Twelve. The cult was fortifying their place on the islands and making sure that they were not welcoming of outsiders. Brother Twelve had a new mistress named Mabel Skatow, who would end up changing her name to Madame Zed, which I'm happy with the name change. She's like an ex-man <laughs> or ex-woman. And ex-woman. like some kind of weird dominatrix. You don't know half of it. <laughs> oh, shit. She was not well-liked, as she would use a riding crop on the members of the cult. Wow. <laughs> a what? Riding, riding crop. crop. What is that? It's a long... Um, oh, what, you hit a horse with? Yeah, exactly. Oh, those yeah. assholes? Yeah. Okay. What, horses are assholes? What are you saying? No, the people hitting the horses. Just go, yeehaw, and reel the reins. So once the two had milked almost $100,000 for Mabel's husband, she left him. So this is 1920s. It's a lot of fucking money. Mm -hmm. Because remember how much $25,000 was? Yeah. The poor guy was a poultry farmer, so like probably chicken and turkeys or whatever. How did he have so much money? Farming used to make a lot of money. I guess. 1929 would see the Aquarian Foundation legally dissolved, but that did not stop Brother 12 or many of his followers or new members that they were still pulling in. Due to his legal issues and likely just his diminishing mental state, Brother 12 became far more paranoid and would begin to accumulate a fortune in gold. Brother 12 would have his cult members head to the mainland and trade paper money in for gold coins. They would aim for American Gold Eagle coins in either $10 or $20 denominations. In the 20s, it's probably still a lot of money. Brother 12 and Madam Zed would devise a scheme to ensure that their gold would make it back to the island. Their devious plan involved putting the coins in mason jars and then filling the tops with uh, melted wax to keep the top closed and kind of keep people from realizing what was in the jar. I'm just surprised this actually worked. (laughs) These jars would then be placed into boxes that had ropes for handles so they could carry them easier. These boxes would be transported by the new tugboat that I mentioned earlier that I had trouble saying the name. <laughs> they would then bury the gold all over DeCourcy Island and probably their other island as well. Was there a single gold sword that was buried? 
I don't think there was gold sword, but they might have made one. Who knows? Okay. <laughs> Just for future reference. I didn't hear about a foundry, but who knows? That's what Jeffrey was looking for. Yep. Yeah. Yep. All them years later. It's a full circle of craziness. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. We've solved it. Madam Zed was a slave driver and would work the members as hard as she could on the island because she considered them tests to their fitness and this would be an advancement to their spirituality. Okay. Fucking cults. <laughs> what if you're a fucking fat slob? You probably wouldn't be at the end of this cult. <laughs> I would not be. Big up the slob. Things would begin to fall apart as a man that was being detained on Valdez Island, their other island, escaped from the cellar he was being locked in and rode to the mainland and reported what was going on to the British Columbia Provincial Police in Nanaimo. For those that didn't know, like I didn't, BC had a provincial police force between 1858 and 1950. Wow, that's a long time. Yeah. I don't know. This investigation may not have had action, but it was just the beginning. Things were spiraling out of control, though, and the main members of the cult would end up revolting against Brother 12 and Madam Zed, and they would launch a lawsuit against Brother 12 and try to get all of their money back as they knew Brother 12 had a ton in gold. The court cases would be quite uh, the show, and one, the lawyer suing Brother 12 collapsed in the court, and as he did, an entire row in the uh, court collapsed. Oh my god. People would link this reaction back to Brother 12 and his powers from the Great White Lodge. (laughs) No. I just rolled my eyes so hard I'm getting a minor headache. Yeah. I love these people. (laughs) So ridiculous. 1930 would see the ship the Lady Royal back in British Columbia waters. Uh, This was a very welcome sight for Brother 12 and Madam Zed as they would make their escape on this ship. Uh, this would not go smoothly, though, as they almost smashed the ship along the shore of California when evading customs. Oh, oopsie poodle. When the ship was <laughs> spotted back on the Washington coast, they were taken to Roche Harbor. So the customs caught up with them. They, you know, they almost crashed and they spun around and came back and didn't go well. I'm not sure if they were sent or escaped, but they ended up back on their ship and made their way to DeCourcy Island again. Once back, they invited the Canadian customs onto the ship to inspect it. I'm kind of assuming they probably got rid of everything they wanted to get rid of first. They were welcome back, to, but the cult was not warm with their welcome, as there was a ton of dissent, especially from the men in the cult. Can't imagine why. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know, and you take away their wives and stuff. And that's, that's weird. It's a common theme, I hear. It is, yeah. Angry men. <laughs> Men are never angry. <laughs> Especially old white men. Yeah. <laughs> old angry white cool, men. Those cucumbers. Yeah. Well, Yikes. Totally. It wasn't for old angry white men. <laughs> really? Can't think of any. No. The infighting would see a bunch of the members fleeing with a ton of the money. Brother 12 would have most of these people hunted down and brought back, but not all of them would be found. At the time, Brother 12 and Mr. Zed would change their names. They would announce it in the British Columbia Gazette, even. You know, it's like not being quiet about it. Cousin 13, super subtle. (laughs) (laughs) Brother 12 would now be known as Emile de Valdez, and Mr. Zed would be known as Zura de Valdez. Of course, these names would be taken to honor Valdez Island, that was one Um. of the colonies. (laughs) 
How does anybody identify them? <laughs> exactly. That's such a good name, Pete. So obscure. I mean. Especially when you announce it in one of the local newspapers. <laughs> yeah. I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to change my name so nobody can find me. I'm going to announce it in the newspaper. Yeah. My new name is Myrtle. Myrtle Barbara. <laughs> Myrtle the turtle. <laughs> my I... name is Don't Look Over Here, Smith. <laughs> Look over there. <gasps> 1933 would finally see the courts rule against Brother 12 or Emile de Valdez, but of course they could not collect the awarded money as Brother 12 and Madame Zed had fled the country. Now, of course, they did not leave without a wake of destruction left behind them. They would smash buildings, farm implements, and even blow up the Lady Royal ship. Oh. They fled the island in 1932 in their tugboat and would end up escaping back to Europe. They took as much gold as they could with them when they fled from Canada. They sound more like pirates than a cult. <laughs> it's, <gasps> it's a bit of everything. How much <laughs> rum are they drinking? <laughs> All the rum. I don't know. All the rum. Brother 12 would be pronounced dead on November 7th, 1934 in Switzerland, but oh. it's thought this was a fake death as he was pronounced dead by an Aquarian Foundation member. Well, that's convenient. Yeah. Yep. Especially, yeah, he may have been seen in San Francisco after his death. He was thought to have been seen by a son of an Aquarian member on a ship in San Francisco in 1936. The real crazy part is that it is believed that Brother 12 had a hoard of $400,000 before he fled British Columbia, coming in at today's money at $7.4 million. Yeah. <laughs> Nothing to shake a stick at, yeah. as you old white men say. They likely did not take a lot of this money with them, though. When they fled, because it's hard to hide all that fucking gold. So Brother 12 may have transported this money a bit at a time over years, but um, they may have put it into banks around North America or Europe. But it is thought that at least a portion of this money may still be on two of the Gulf Islands that the cult was headquartered on. People still, to this day, try to find the gold in caves or in the sunken ship or on the land of these islands. But to this day, no money has been found. So just as a weird little uh, footnote, um, a BC media mogul, David Holmes Black of Black Press, that owns papers in Alberta, BC, Hawaii, Ohio, and Washington, purchased the DeCourcy Island farm that was owned by Brother 12 in 2017 for the small sum of $1.6 million. And the place was listed at $2.19 million. So... When it comes to BC land prices, that's fucking cheap. Yeah, it is. <laughs> but yeah, that's my story. Wow. So that's the that's Brother 12 and uh, all the craziness. I've never even heard of that case. Un- unfortunately, mm. it's so old, it's hard to get a lot of the information of the real abuse yeah. that happened. Because it sounds like there was a lot of really serious abuse, but it's so old that it's not really documented. documented, well. documented unfortunately. well, yeah, I covered the Oneida case in the book and it was, it was kind of along the same lines. It was old. And obviously when stuff's old, it gets skewed by time. Yeah. So it's, it's hard to, to kind of know what actually happened and what's, what's real and what's, what's nationalism. Cause yeah. it's quite often old cases is same with I'm covering the Roanoke case in my new book at the minute. And it's kind of like that. It's kind of like there's so much misinformation and disinformation. And obviously over the course of time, stuff's got skewed. Yeah. If I remember right, I think um, Dark Poutine actually covered this 
another local BC uh, podcast covered this a little while ago, and I think they were pretty in depth too. It's really interesting. I love Dark Poutine too. I was really uh, really happy I got to meet those guys because they're they're from the town yeah, I grew I up in. Photo. Yeah, I got the photo of me and yeah. uh, Mike and Scott. Yeah, <laughs> another Mike. Oh yeah, they seem cool. Yeah, fucking another Mike. Surprised <laughs> there's not like some weird cult of Mikes. That's what. Yeah, it's in coming. my softball Next league. Year's plan. Yeah, in my softball league. <laughs> there's so many Mikes. It's like, okay, forget this. Everyone needs a nickname. Yeah, or last name. Yeah, yeah. Brew crime. That's it. Just yeah. Well, Mike's last name in my phone is Brew Crime, just so I can keep them sorted. <laughs> so you can differentiate. Well, I mean, and- growing up in high school, my my name in high school was my last name most of the time. Yeah. See, like I'm saying, my name's so common. Everyone just calls me M. <laughs> I believe it. Even though that's kind of like, okay, M. That could literally be anybody's name beginning yeah. with E, M, or M. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah. Mike, even M. Okay. It's okay, not a popular name here. <laughs> <laughs> Emily's not really that common. I, it's not here. common. It, it, I've, I've known a lot of Emily's, but nothing like Mike, nothing like a lot I of names. I think if you Google like the UK's most popular names, Emily is always number one. At I least would... in the top five. So yeah. Like, okay. We had a lot My of... Like, I picked your name before it's popular. Like, okay. Got a lot of variations on uh, Jennifer and yeah. Sarah's very popular here, I think. I think so, yeah. Yep. That's why my sister came up with the weirdest, most obscure names like mm-hmm. Casper. I love that. Mm-hmm. Just just call the kid Friendly Ghost. Rose Faith Cave. I love that. I don't understand it, but I love it. Uh, it's because like when before when she was pregnant, she was like his name begins with C, or no, it was like. His name, like the the typical name, begins with K, but we're spelling it with a C. And I was like Keith, like joking, and she was like, "Yeah, his name's Keith," like joking. And I was like, "Okay, roast beef, Keith." And she was like, "Yeah." Although, and then it's just kind of gone from that. Like I, I just call him roast beef, Keith. Even though his name's Casper, like he's probably gonna grow up to fucking hit me. <laughs> All right, yeah, let's, let's get into the next story. Yeah. <laughs> It's my turn. It's me, Mario. No. Um, So I'm going to talk about Jim Jones, specifically the People's Temple. For my pairing, I picked, like I always do, simply because of the name. It's from Trinity Brew uh, Evoke Fermentations. The beer is called Mad Ear because I would imagine everyone listening to his tapes and all that at the... At Jonestown, probably went a little nuts. I'm going to read just the description on the bottle. It is 8.1% alcohol, Woo-hoo. 35 IBUs, a couple words I can't say, no spices. And then it says, our beers are consciously vegan, re-fermented in the bottle to high carbonation levels for lively aromatics and a drive effervescence. So, Mike, if you have the bottle opener. This beer is horrifying. <laughs> All right. This brewery, Trinity no. Brew, is from Colorado Springs, Colorado. Just to put it out there. Uh, it is super cloudy, like dark orange with an off-white head. It's kind of um, fruity. What's the percent? Fruity oh, aroma. 8.9 or something. Mm. Yeah. It's pretty sweet on the nose. It's more citrusy. 
on the flavor, it's um, it's definitely a wheat beer. It's got that wheat thing going on, some citrus notes, so maybe a little bit of tropical thing going on too. Um, it's herbal, no bitterness really. As they're making fun of me. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. It's nice. I really like it. Like we do. I'm going to talk about the People's Temple. I'm going to start obviously at the beginning, kind of little, letting you guys know a little bit about who Jim Jones is. But my majority of the focus is going to be what actually happened at Jonestown. There is so much audio recordings and things on this that obviously I'll post some links to for the listeners and all of that to take a peek at. Um, but I kind of just focused on some of the points that I think stood out most to me that I think I feel like talking about, to be honest. Well, there's just so much, right? Like there's so much. Yeah. It's, you can't like we'd have to have a well, it would be a series episode of a on its own. Exactly. Exactly. It would need like a good 10 episodes. <laughs> yeah, to, to, to touch on all of it. So I picked out just what I found most interesting and we'll kind of go from there. Um, obviously, I know in Cults Uncovered, Emily does have a whole chapter dedicated to uh, the People's Temple. So go read it. Yes, yeah. yeah, so go read it. Yeah, she probably has a little bit better because she wasn't as biased as I was talking just about the like the cool shit she found. Um, <laughs> she just gave you the facts, but that's not who I am. So <laughs> if you've listened to the show, you know that's not what to expect from us. No. So let's get into it. So the People's Temple started in Indianapolis, Indiana in 1955. The temple preached to those who remained drugged with the opiate of religion and had to be brought to enlightenment. Jim Joe started stirring up a lot of trouble, receiving a lot of criticism in Indiana for his integrationist views. Um, he ended up essentially just moving to Redwood, California in 1965. From there, they did, of course, have a couple other branches, but did eventually make another move and move their headquarters to San Francisco. Before getting into what happened in Jonestown, um, to give you a little bit of information of who this Jim Jones was, his full name was James Warren Jones. He was a preacher, faith healer, and cult leader. He was born on May 13th in 1931 in Indiana. He was a leader, and I say leader with some hesitation because I couldn't actually find anything that he went, like, and in quotes, to school for actually had like in-depth studies or learned from. Mostly what I saw is that he took and studied works from Stalin, Marx, Gandhi, and Hitler. Uh, That guy. Yeah, but what he had done from the reports is that he took what their strengths and weaknesses were and made his his own pile of shit from that. Um, Yeah, but essentially, I mean... It's nice to know he took the time to research influential leaders, whether they're good or bad, mm. and spun Failed it into... Leaders? Sorry? Failed leaders? Yeah. I don't know. I don't want to say that Hitler was great, but as in, like, he was influential in his time. Mm-hmm. Yep. So it is interesting that um, Jim Jones took the time to see what worked, what did not work from the crowds that were responding to each, and mush that into his own nonsense. Yeah, if you want something to grow, you can't just move shit from one pile to another. You have to figure out which particles of the shit works. And then make your own pile of shit. And hopefully stuff grows from that fertilizer. Yeah, of course. (laughs) You are not wrong. (laughs) (laughs) 
for a little bit more on just Jones's personal life, he did marry a nurse named Marceline Baldwin. Uh, it's important to note that she fully supported his movement. She followed him to Jonestown, essentially to her and his death. So she was very loyal. Ugh. Jones, and to quote him, declared that he was outraged at what he perceived as racial discrimination in his white congregation. His own church was pointly open to all ethnic groups. It's important to talk about this because at the time, this was unheard of. Yeah. There was still a big separation of whites and not whites, essentially, regardless of what you know their origins were, if they were you know Asian, African, whatever, right? So definitely what he came out to preach was inclusion and essentially the removal of segregation, which at that time obviously meant a lot to the people around him because here they are being included, not necessarily included with like what the whites were preaching, but just they have their own thoughts. They have their own, they can do whatever they want, essentially following this man. Jim Jones and Marceline did have children. The reason I'm bringing up their kids specifically is because he referred to his family as a rainbow family because he did adopt uh, children of other ethnicities to essentially show the inclusion that he really means it. This is what's close to his heart. Through some of the research there is, and I'm going to shoot myself in the foot for not remembering what his name is. I do feel like it was like Jim Jones Jr. I'm not positive. One of his sons who actually survived what happened in Jonestown. And he spoke a lot about kind of where his father was coming from, but definitely spoke on the side of he was in complete delusion. Yeah. Do you remember Emily? I can't remember his name exactly, but huh. like after that all happened, he was kind of all my dad was right, kind of like he wanted the best and he didn't really accept that his dad was obviously a cult leader that led people to their death. Mm. Wasn't he though? <laughs> I I, th I think you have to take into perspective what is happening and the social influences that are happening. So mm -hmm. like any other cults at that time, this felt right to them, given what they have. Obviously, us looking back on something like this, you're just like, what the fuck is this guy talking about? But then you don't have that, right? Yeah, like very early, he was, as you mentioned, like it was all civil rights. Like it, it yeah. did seem so innocent looking back, hindsight. It ended up really horrible, but when he started the cult, it was positive. Like it, it came in like a time when it was needed in the sense that people like there was a civil rights movement and there was no kind of group that white people and people of color could congregate together and be yep. seen as equals. So it kind of came at a time that he took advantage of it, obviously. Yeah, absolutely. Like something that he held was kind of like mass gatherings and mass prayers. And something that stood out to me quite a bit was he would often have mass healings. Something that uh, was brought up in one of the stories earlier was, you know, Jim Jones at times would have women who'd come in who have a bad back or famously in one of the videos, you know, a broken leg. But based on some of his, you know, mumble jumble, magically her <laughs> cast comes off and she's fine. And you can see her like running through the masses and everyone's getting hype, getting energy, getting power from that. Obviously, now looking back at it, knowing what that led to, you're just like, all of these people are just you know, living in their a world of their own, essentially. Yeah. However, 
that wasn't the mind frame then, which definitely changes people's perspectives on a lot of that, right? Obviously, eventually, Jim Jones started facing a lot of scrutiny. From here is kind of where the idea came to start the People's Temple Agricultural Project. I'm not going to call it the People's Temple Agricultural Project because I can't (laughs) say that third word. So I'm going to call it Jonestown. Uh, Jonestown was located in Guana. Uh, There's another city close by called Kaituma or another one called Georgetown. Things to do with Jonestown other than just kind of give you an idea like where it is on a map when you're looking. Something that we've come up talking about the other cults as well as a lot of the followers and devotees actually surrendered their passports upon moving, obviously all of their livelihood income, because the idea was to go to this place where it's their own oasis. They're going to create their own food symbols, agriculture, their livestock and everything, creating their own little place because they're getting away from the scary Americas, from the CIA, who are apparently bad people. I agree with that, probably, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I I don't agree or disagree because I don't know enough to form my own opinion, giving the time when this happened, you know, back in the day. But it seems very extremist to do this. I would say that it seems like the CIA has probably sold more cocaine than most uh, drug lords in South America. But yeah, I agree. I think at the time, like, he was dead worried that the CIA, CIA and the FBI were, like, focusing on him. And they were, like, dead worried about a coming fascist leader who would take over America. But that wasn't, like, they weren't on their radar at the time. It was too early. Yeah, like, (laughs) he was dead worried that, like, the CIA and the FBI were mad obsessed with looking into them. But but at the time, they weren't. No, no, no. You got to move forward a little bit. (laughs) But what I'm just saying is... Would Weird Al write a song about the CIA if it wasn't true? Ah, no. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, we have to trust Weird Al. We do. We have to. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, so. But, uh, you have to trust your heart. Yeah. My heart says Weird Al. <laughs> okay. So before I start talking about the mass suicide, and sorry if that's a spoiler for some, um, I think it's important to talk about a lot of the reports that came that Jim Jones essentially started kind of losing his shit. There's a lot of stories that came out of people who, A, were part of the congregation, who then left the congregation, people who stayed, didn't end up actually um, dying in the later, which I'll talk about the mass suicide, or also, I think it was nice of Jim Jones to record and have someone actually transcribe all of the communications that he was sharing with his team and video record it, because um, it gives us an opportunity to talk about the facts, like now. If that makes sense, yeah. Mm-hmm. It's it is nice when you can have video proof or audio proof of the insanity that happened. It's it's hard to put it into perspective. I mean, a few of the things is obviously his paranoia started increasing over the years. He ended up thinking that the Guanians, and I'm not sure if that's what people from Guan are called, but it felt right. Um, that they can't be trusted. They're going to come and take what's his and what his people have built. He's not not from there. It's theirs. But I think that's besides (laughs) the point at this point, right? Like you you grow to this mentality of it's you versus them. I know, but it's just real convenient for him, isn't it? 
But I think the delusion. And the white man thinks land is his. That's shocking. But I, I think it's a delusion of it becomes us versus the CIA, whoever, to us versus them, and then them can be whoever. Yeah. Yeah. No, mm-hmm. that's true. Yeah. Um. While looking into this, some of the other areas that he contemplated about going are uh, sound worse, uh, like North Korea, Albania, or former Yugoslavia. Uh-uh. yeah like my where i'm from don't go there <laughs> i mean yugoslavia is dope and shit but things happened but regardless going to north korea i think is a little excessive but i think that speaks more to just what was going through his mind of what this imminent attack was from them from the outside yeah i do have a clip in all of that there's three clips which we'll play in a bit but it's actually recordings of the what we'll call the death note. It's a death recording. It's 44 minutes long of basically the last sermon that he gave while all the cyanide poisonings were happening. I made the mistake of listening to the whole thing. And um, biggest things to note from it of while all this brainwashing and everything these people endured is you throughout the 44 minutes quietly start noticing how the background gets quieter yeah. as yeah. everyone is uh, slowly passing away or coming to this yeah. revolutionary suicide. Yeah, with with a lot of yelling and moaning and stuff in the background. But, but it's it's that. And then as you reach, you know, minute, you know, 38, 39, 40, there's very, I don't know, it's really morbid. Going kind of back to the bit on the CIA some of the recordings there's oftentimes when he refers to them as capitalistic pigs and that they want to start this war that they want to take uh the people who moved to guana back to to america to steal their livelihood from there to take their taxes from there take their money from there dispose their family he would actually have jim jones would actually have things called white knights and not knights but like knights like with a k where he would actually give up recordings that would play. And essentially, it's just brainwash fuel, right? Like, you cannot be in the camp and not hear him talking to you, scaring you into this, scaring you into submission almost. Sounds like North Korea. I I don't even know what it sounds like, right? Because, I mean, I know what it sounds like because I heard some of the excerpts, but as in, like, to hear that every night before you're going to bed, this voice and you're in the dark, you're literally in the fucking jungle. Yeah. And you've given up everything, given up your passport. And it is whatever their best intentions were. I think at some point it obviously took a very sour turn and things got weird. And I don't say that lightly, but obviously something at some point happened where shit hit the fan. One of the topics that comes up is, okay, well, why didn't these people just leave, right? If this was such a free land and this is their salvation, why couldn't people leave? Obviously, some people did try. From what I was able to see, some people did get out, but if they had partners that had also joined, the other partner would stay, so the husband would stay, the wife would stay. They would sometimes keep the kid there, or some of the children who grew up just knowing this, the kids would like to stay, and then there was a lot of issues with dragging the children also out. Well, I use dragging lightly, but taking the children out of that situation. So it was a lot to take in. What kind of led to the demise or to the final outcome Um, Obviously, a lot of family members who were living back in the United States were receiving letters from family members saying that, like, yeah, no, things aren't looking so good here. Like, I wish I had a way to leave. I can't leave. And um, that's kind of when it starts to get very sticky. 
<laughs> I don't know if sticky is the right word, two years, but sticky felt right. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Before kind of talking about the final kind of 48 hours, I think it's important to talk about Jim Jones's health and obviously the quick decline in his health. Um, there was a lot of mention of abuse and different conditions that he would give himself, abuse that he uh, put onto other people. Mm-hmm. A lot of it was said that a lot of these conditions he gave himself was to gain sympathy from his followers. Um, Some of the things I found that he reportedly had was high blood pressure, that he would have strokes, things like weight loss. Um, The weight loss part was a little bit interesting because um, when he was found deceased, he was quite overweight. So I'm not quite sure how he was able to pawn that story off onto his followers. One thing um, also is that he apparently did have a lung infection, but he played it off as actually lung cancer. And I think this is a way to gain sympathy of, you know, this is the struggles that he's going through, yet he's here with them fighting the good fight, so to say. So let's get into kind of the final days of the People's Temple. From here, Jones was getting a lot of attention. And specifically, there was a counselor who represented California 11th Congregation District. Uh, His name was Leo Ryan. He announced that he's going to visit Jonestown. On November 14th, Ryan flew to Jonestown. A couple other people included um, came with him. There's different people who were like the Ministry of Information, the Mission of the United States Embassy, uh, NBC reporters. There was a videographer, NBC producer. Lots of different people came even a Washington Post reporter. Essentially, they were going there to see, A, what was happening, to document it. And from what I kind of gathered is to show the American people a view of, no, everything is okay here, or like, no, it is not okay. Um, There was also a few concerned family members of relatives who were currently living in Jonestown who also traveled with them. The intent was for them to go essentially rescue their family members from this establishment. So they arrived in Jonestown on the morning of November 17th. The idea was for them to arrive on the landing, plane landing strip, be escorted to Jonestown, see what's there, see some of the family members, check out the living conditions, and that was that. Jonestown was aware that this visit was happening, and I'd actually planned kind of like a party to show how everything's amazing, how everything is great. There's obviously recordings from this and lots of video recordings and something that I found curious watching it is the depictions of what's going on by the members of the uh, people's temple seemed very like scripted almost like they seemed like they were reporting the same thing like everything's great Jim Jones is here there's plenty of food there's Mm -hmm. this so it seemed not very genuine yeah, it seems mad forced. It's on you can see it on YouTube, I think, can't you? Yeah, there's a bunch of different ones. So it's it was really curious because obviously they're giving the interviews, they're quote unquote um complying with everything that's going on, but it seemed much more directed than I thought it would be. From here that evening, they did have like kind of a party for them, a welcome party. Jim Jones did give a sermon talking about, you know, his beliefs and God and whatever. And the crew was there. Um, It was reported that some of the crew members actually received little notes that were slipped to them in secret from different members who were at the congregation there asking uh, when they leave tomorrow if they can leave with them to go back to 
back to America because they want to get out of there. The next day on the 18th, to put it very lightly, this is when stuff went down. So Congressman Leo Ryan and his party took some of the members who say that they wanted to go away with them. And their idea was to bring them back to Port Kaituma airstrip, which is where their private jet was. And of course, the plan was just to fly back to the States. Obviously, that did not go well. When they had left, Jim Jones had some of his members, um, my understanding was looking like a Jeep with firearms, head to the airstrip. And obviously from here, there was kind of a no turning back moment. Yeah. Yeah, it got bad. So obviously they met them back at the strip. From here, five were killed, 11 were injured. And of course, the news reached back to Guana that this shootout essentially had occurred. The idea here was we need to stop them from leaving the airstrip in the private jet because they cannot a share what actually happened here. They cannot bring extra people. We cannot have people talk about what is happening here. One, they're going to come and steal it from us. They're going to take away what is ours, what we have worked for. And of course, you know, the CIA, they're going to take them back and it's better to have their own life in their own hands. That's a lot of assumption. Yeah. So it's a lot of assumption. But essentially, Jim Jones assassinated these people who were heading back to the plane to leave. Yep. Cut and dry. And I think from here, there was a sense of no turning back. This yep. congressman mm-hmm. not coming back that to the it. States. Yep. Yeah. That was it. Mm-hmm. So from here, and Mike has the clips ready. So I only picked three little parts of it, simply because, A, we're not going to sit here for 44 minutes listening to all of it. Mm-hmm. And I think if, you know, listeners, everyone's really interested... Obviously, we'll post a link to the script. You can Google it. It's everywhere. But um, so the first one, what they decided is because of everything that happened, the attack happened, is now is our time to prove ourselves to our faith Mm -hmm. and, of course, um, do this revolutionary um, suicide. And, yeah, so the first clip is basically just the little introduction to them. How very much I've loved you. How very much I've tried my best to give you the good life. So obviously the first clip really, you know, short, but his introduction is this is his people. This is what he's kind of done. This is where he's gotten him. Yep. For those who don't know, so what happened is essentially cyanide was mixed into Kool-Aid that obviously caused poison. It took about five minutes for the children and babies and took about 20 to 30 minutes for the adults for them to pass away. Some of the survivors from Jonestown, so these are the people who did not drink the Kool-Aid, advised that the parents who did have children there, if their children wouldn't drink it out of the cup, would actually um, put some cyanide in syringes and shoot it directly into either their mouth or like little injections like into uh, the tops of their arms. The next clip is kind of halfway through the sermon. For people who are uncomfortable listening to these sort of thing, this one's about 30 seconds. So if you just want to skip ahead, it's about 30 seconds yeah. for this one. Yeah, thanks, Meg. You're sitting there. Show your love for one another. Make it 
calm, let's get calm, let's get calm. Do us. We had nothing we could do. We can't, we can't separate ourselves from our own people. For 20 years laying in some old rotten nursing home. Yeah, so that was some of the stuff that he was saying openly to the members that, you know, if you go back now, if you head back to the to America, you end up in a nursing home. Um, something that's really eerie about, obviously, all of the clips is very slowly in the background, you hear less and less chatter. Um, as I mentioned earlier, right, you know, 20 to 30 minutes was estimated for some of the adults. So as this was happening, there was obviously people actively coming to their fate, coming to their final breath and all of that. Let's do the last clip. It's about a minute. Hey, you don't, don't fail to follow my advice. You'll be sorry. You'll be sorry. That we do it and that they do it. Us trust you, you have to step across. We used to think this world, this world's not our home. Well, it sure isn't. We were saying it sure wasn't. Yeah. We don't want to tell him. All he's doing, if they will tell him, assure these children. Can some people assure these children of the relaxation of stepping over to the next plane? We've set an example for others. We've set one thousand people who say we don't like the way the world is. So this clip for me was a little part of the clip was really chilling because I think in the background you can actually hear a little child saying like, I don't want it. Kind of going back to, you know, when it was uh, one of the earlier stories we had heard where the mom, dad, you know, separated the children, gave them that option, didn't make that call for them. We're here, not, not so much. Obviously different circumstances, different people, different timing, but definitely just as horrifying. All in all, on that day, there was about 908 people who died on the settlement 267 were children. There was also a couple other followers, uh, one of the other headquarters there who also, once they received word that yes, they were executing the plan, had also done the same and taken cyanide and taken their life. And I believe bringing the final number to 918. Yeah, obviously there's a huge aftermath with this. Everything that came out of this, obviously I can't imagine walking into that scene and obviously I'll include a photo I don't not going to include many photos because it's pretty easy to just understand what happened there and just the actual volume of sadness, of damage. Yeah. To put it into perspective, uh, before the events of September 11th, uh, obviously 9-11, Jonestown was the single incident with the most intentional civilian deaths in American history. So yeah, that's my story. It's horrible. It's a sad case. Yeah, it is really a sad case. Yeah, it's horrible. It's so hard to to do to do it. I don't know. I don't want to say to do no, it justice, no, but to just kind of understand yeah. what all happened. I definitely, after listening to the full forty four minute clip, like was a little disappointed with myself for going through that and. Just, yeah, the clip on that you can listen to the forty five minutes. Oh, it's horrible. It is very mm-hmm. horrible. Yeah. Yeah, it's definitely tough and. um I can understand, I mean, I'd like to think that I'm, you know, stronger than someone who would get brainwashed or something like that, but you you can't compare to being in that situation in those circumstances yeah. and looking back and being like, oh, I would never, you know, follow this random guy to here, but luckily we don't live in a society where that is awesome. happening right now or that the need for that is here. Yeah. 
I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I think that Jim Jones in particular was like his cult was so successful because like he mercilessly, mercilessly took advantage of the desires of so many people at the time, especially like a longing for a purpose, a family, racial equality, yeah, and economic opportunity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, I, why, that's why it's so sad. It, it is so sad, and I think another thing that. I think speaks volume to the type of person that he was is uh, he himself did not die from cyanide poisoning. He did shoot himself in the head. It was a self-inflicted wound. So during obviously little pieces of the recording we heard, you know, telling them that this is, you know, to greener pastures and this Mm -hmm. is the right thing to do. And him as a coward doesn't follow what he said to his people. Yeah. Yeah. So... Yeah, that's uh, my story. All right. Well, Emily, can you kind of shout out uh, all of your different uh, things? So your podcast, your website, your books. Tell Mm. people more about all your stuff. Okay. So go on to morbidology.com to read my articles. Google Emily G. Thompson to check out my books. And then go on to Apple or wherever else you listen to podcasts. And type in Morbidology to listen to any of my episodes on my podcast. And I can highly recommend that. Go check her podcast out. It's really good. And so are her books. Mm -hmm. Thank you. So if you want to tune into Brew Crime, you can go to brewcrime.com. You can go to any social media platform and go to Brew Crime. You can email us at brewcrime at pacificbeerchat.com. And if you want to support us on Patreon to help us make the show even better. Three beers in the podcast. Amber, Ange, Daniela, Mariana, Maya, The Phase of Our Lives, and True Crime Nana. All right. So thanks for tuning in. Cheers. Brew Crime's intro was created by Mike using Creative Commons Attribution Licensed Audio from purple-planet.com, soundbible.com, and freesoundeffects.com. Logo design was by Ben Greenberg. All cases and stories were written by Beck, Nina, and Mike, and our sources are put into the show notes for each episode. We always want to give credit to the people that research the cases we talk about. Check out our store at brewcrime.threadless.com, where you can purchase swag like t-shirts, phone cases, beach towels, and all kinds of cool stuff. We can also be found on your favorite podcast apps, our hosts, Spreaker.com or brewcrime.com, as well as at brewcrime on Twitter, at brewcrime on Facebook, at facebook.com slash groups slash brewcrime. Thanks for listening. This has been a production of Pacific Beer Chat. Hey there, Rainbow Warriors. I'm CJ, host of Beyond the Rainbow, true crimes of the LGBT. Q. I. Okay, my specialties do not include acronyms, but they do include true crime stories Join me as I put my spin on some crimes that you might have already heard about, such as the Matthew Shepard story and the Pulse nightclub mass shooting in Orlando, Florida. I also touch upon some stories that you might not be so familiar with, such as the murder of transgender Gwen Araujo and the abusive relationship of Becky Reed and Lindsay Vox. Crimes against and by the LGBT community is nothing new but it is a relatively new concept for a whole podcast to be dedicated to it. You can find Beyond the Rainbow True Crimes of the LGBT on almost all podcast apps. You can also interact with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Remember, 
It's not a crime to be gay. Unless you're a murderer. Hi, I'm Jenny, the host of It's Murder Up North. If you're curious about the murderous north of England, this podcast is definitely for you. I've lived in various parts of the north of England. I went to college in the shadow of Saddleworth Moor, where Mary Hindley and Ian Brady buried those five innocent children. I've worked in the city of Leeds, where the Yorkshire Ripper targeted his victims in the 70s. Knowing how geographically close I have been to these crimes made me curious, and that curiosity became its murder up north. However, my main hope is to help you see the person, not the victim. Check out It's Murder Up North wherever you get your podcast fix. (laughs) (laughs) No. Okay. I mean, that didn't happen. It's fine. Can you hear us properly? Yeah, I can hear you guys just fine, but it's probably better if I lean over here. Ah, yes, yes, it is. Yes. Does it sound okay? Yeah, it sounds great, actually, yeah. Okay, that's great. Because, yeah, you've got your set up uh, to your normal mic, right? Yeah, I've got my mic, but it's kind of, like, off to the side, so it's kind of <laughs> pointless with the camera. Yeah, no doubt. We've turned our camera off because we just have my uh, webcam in the middle so that it gets the voice from all three of us. Okay. So you can turn it off if you want. It doesn't matter. Um, I don't even know how. <laughs> <laughs> I think you click on the, uh, the, the little video camera symbol. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Never used it before. <laughs> no worries. Deja vu. Yeah. Oh, there, there we, we go. go. Hi, I'm Emily, and I am the creator of the website Morbidology, and I'm also the creator of what is? It? Sorry, can I start again? <laughs> yeah, I'm the edit too, so don't worry about <laughs> it. <laughs> Sorry. Not enough alcohol yet. Oh my god. <laughs> She was at a bar before this, so she's had the alcohol. She's one of them. We're good. Oh, have you had the four foot eleven or something of it yet? I was drinking Peroni because that's the only thing they had on draft. Oh no, I like Peroni. Oh no, it gives me a headache. You just have to drink more Mm. until you go to sleep. (laughs) Anyways, okay, let's do that again. Was born, uh, yeah, Luke. I don't know. That's not pronounced probably because I didn't say it French. But Luke, I am your father. Luke. The following day, police in Switzerland. In Switzerland. Can do that sentence again because that <laughs> wasn't good. Lundgren used a system of reading called, I don't know how to pronounce this, chiasmus. That sounds right. Lund- no, sounds good to me. <laughs> okay. In intas... In t- in, inta- mm. <laughs> in anticipation. Maybe do that again once we all stop laughing. <laughs> I just dropped something. We can't hear you. Are you there still? Nope. Oh, oh hello. She went on a camping trip. <laughs> yes, can you hear me? Uh, I can, yes, 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 yes. Oh my god, I don't know what happened there. <laughs> no worries, it had been quite a while. It had been like an hour and 50 minutes on the call, so maybe just uh, messed up because of that. Oh my god, I'm, I'm talking too much. <laughs> no, 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 not at all. We're all talking the same amount. I'm Hello? Hello, can you hear me? what happened there it like went silent and then it came back on but i couldn't hear anyone but i could hear myself <laughs> who knows does this happen quite often or is it something on my end i've 
No, I would. I, I don't know because the furthest we've ever collaborated with, I think, is either Texas or um, Chicago. So who fucking knows? All right. Well, let's get started on my story here, so we can get you, uh, get you off to doing whatever you were doing, drinking <laughs> before it's drinking. like two in the morning. Nothing. And you said earlier you didn't have an imagination because you couldn't write. Yeah. <laughs> I think it might be the five beers. Yeah. <laughs> this, this beer that was is very, definitely... just very descriptive. Yeah. yeah, they should have let me drink beer before I wrote my high school papers. <laughs> high school papers. <laughs> you handed those in? <laughs> Pearlson. Or Pearls. I, speak. I think you should do that again. <laughs> no. And Sarah Ellen Purcell, Catholic apostic uh, church, a weird old splinter group of the church. Who just burped? That was her. <laughs> that was me breathing in very happily. Oh, okay. <laughs> I live in Ireland, remember? <laughs> I think it was two of you. Nope. No. No, because it was clearly female sure. <laughs> and nina and i looked at each other to confirm that it wasn't either of us <laughs> no it's me breathing in very very heavy. Oh, okay 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 we're talking about catholics in ireland <laughs> scary catholics everywhere hide your children hide your it's spooky <laughs> hide your children hide your nuns <laughs> yeah the <laughs> unfortunately for his wife marjorie edward would not pack up and leave his family. Oh, what? Whoops. Unfortunately, or maybe he would. Yeah. Unfortunately. Plot twist. <laughs> reading twist. Unfortunately for his wife. <laughs> what is the thing when you mix up your letters? Yeah. Oh, dyslexia. dyslexia. I've got uh, dis- oh my God, just I'm reading. So bad. Oh my God. I used to have a really bad stutter. Oh, okay. Yeah. I-, I still have trouble reading out loud. <laughs> I need to have a script because if I don't have a script, I stutter very, very badly. Mm-hmm. With a script, I still fuck up a lot. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Myrtle. Oh, shit. This... Now that I'm looking at this name, I can't read it. What do you think? Myrtle uh, Baumgartner. All right. All right. Let's get back. <laughs> yeah, it's all right. So, it's no, all right. no, no, no. This is great. This is how it always goes. Myrtle sadly uh, would Myrtle. have a, a, a stupid name. Let's not laugh too much at this part. Oh, <laughs> awkward. Oh shit! That's the mic. That's the mic. Yeah, that is me. Yeah. <laughs> it's like your parents knew you were going to be podcaster. <laughs> when I was born, there was no such thing. Right, because you're old. Um. <laughs> hey there. Guess who's younger than me? I am Mike. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, Grandma. <laughs> Granny, thank you. Okay. Yo, you're Oma for sure, or Baba, as my people say. <laughs> no, Baba I'm Beck. Irish, Yo, so. Baba Beck is dope. I'm drinking my Baba now. <laughs> <laughs> what? Baba, like a bottle. Baba. Oh, cute. Yeah. I know, just like me. Mm. Uh huh. You say granny, right, Emily? Yeah, granny. That's yeah. just because I'm from Belfast. Yeah. No, my my, my mom's my mom's mom was granny. 
she's Irish. If, if I called my granny anything else, she would fucking beat me. Yeah, same. <laughs> She'd be horrified. Quick question to um, cut out. Did you turn the barbecue on? Not yet. The oven is on oven for the is- french oh, okay. fries. I can smell it. <laughs> All right. Good segue. So, uh, Sounds like the start of some weird cult. <laughs> the barbecue cult. What's that, mm-hmm. that bird? Oh, now that is a cult. I was flesh of our enemies, okay? <laughs> Give me some like ribs and a lot of steak. Yeah, I can get behind that. <laughs> Anyways, so the temple preached to those who remained. <laughs> Sorry, that's a really bad spelling error. I'm going to just start that again. Yeah, we don't want <laughs> laughing in this. Yeah, this is uh, really not fun. Or snorting. <laughs> James Warren James. He was <laughs> on the morning of November 17th. Just kidding. I skipped a paragraph. <laughs> Oopsie doodle. <laughs> Just jokes. All right. Thanks a lot, Emily, for joining us. You're been awesome. more than welcome. Sorry for the uh, confusion there about the days. Yeah. I know, I was like, what? I didn't really speak much during the Jonestown one because, see, when I was researching, I spoke to a bunch of people that were associated with the cult, and it's just fucking depressing. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. It's... I can't. It's what, it, like, obviously a lot of them are very, 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 very depressing, but that one in particular, because it was so innocent at the start, like, it was people that were searching for, like, obviously, it, it, obviously, as you know, like, the most victims were, they were people of colour, and... I spoke to a lot of families that are involved in it. Oh, God. I, it's just oh, sad. It's too much. I mean, maybe not the best thing to end our episode on. but No, because I think it's it's one that people don't really... I think it's a very important one in the sense that people don't... Like, when I always say, like, oh, people, people like, dismiss people as, like, naive, kooky fanatics mm-hmm. and stuff. And that's the main one that people are like, oh, Jonestown, they're all fucking stupid. And you're like, no, because they they joined, like, hoping for something a lot more than what it ended up 